0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DVD prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18+. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
2: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com Racism meaning white supremacy. Now let me at this point. How many people are familiar with the book by Lothrop T. Lothrop Stoddard? This is an old book. This came out in 1922. Assignment class, everybody going by. The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Yeah, the, okay, the, the last page in the handout has a copy. But I don't know how many of you listen to Carl Nelson's radio show. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some people have called in, Oh, so she's talking about white people aren't superior yeah. and white supremacy and whites are not supreme. Somebody might say, maybe mom's, well, why am I having all these troubles? As a colored person, if white is not supreme, (laughs) meaning do people who classify themselves as white dominate the planet? If anybody, you know, anybody has some space where they don't dominate, Tell me I want to go, and how do I get there? (laughs) Do I have to get on an airplane or a boat? Who owns the airplanes and the boats? No, but this is a very important book. The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy first came out in 1922. He doesn't have any problem. He's almost like a Donald Trump in a way, but this is much more sophisticated than Trump. But talking clearly about the, you know, white domination has taken place. We have accomplished that. But we have to be aware That there are all these colored people. And we have to be aware if China should wake up. Well, China has wakened up. Now, he completely dismisses the Negro. You don't have to worry about the Negro is so far behind That you don't even need to worry or think about that. You see, but you do. We we need to. We white people cannot, what, act like we don't have to have concerns. See, they're not spending all their time singing and dancing. No, they spend their time. They have a few people that sing and dance, but they got a whole lot of people who are 24-7 serious. See, serious, serious, working in three shifts of serious people in all areas of people activity. How do we maintain our position? Now, he interestingly talks about that, White is the highest advancement of people. But he says, but there, you know, we're vulnerable. And that if we mix with any of the people, we can kind of get lost. And we can't have that happen. Do You see, but I say read Stoddard's book, read Neely Fuller. And then read the ISIS papers.
3: (laughs) Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, November 11th, 2016. So I have been told this is our third study session on Lothrop Stoddard's 1920 publication, the rising tide of color against white world supremacy. Uh, that was Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. Uh, that is the same lecture, her final lecture at the Cress Welsing Institute, where she predicted last year that Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. In that same lecture, uh, and in close association, she recommended. Reading this book to get a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, and the concepts, the ideas, the concerns of whites that led to Trump winning that election a couple of days ago. Uh, we will go ahead and get started again. I would encourage folks, anyone students of Dr. Francis Cress or folks who valued uh, her teaching, uh, I would say particularly this week, uh, one of the most stunning predictions uh, a year in advance, no less, uh, in my opinion, uh, to accurately honor Dr. Welsing. We should pay close attention, see if there are any clues uh, in this book that would help us get a better grasp, better understanding of racism, white supremacy, solve some of our problems and solve this here problem. We'll start there. Audio segment number one, this is Context of White Supremacy, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, starting on chapter
0: four. Chapter four, Black Man's Land. Black Man's Land is primarily Africa south of the Sahara Desert. Here dwell the bulk of all the 150 million black men on earth. The Negro and Negroid population of Africa is estimated at about 120 million, four-fifths of the black race total. Besides its African nucleus, the black race has two distant outposts, the one in Australasia, the other in the Americas. The Eastern blacks are found mainly in the archipelagos lying between the Asiatic landmass and Australia. They are the Oriental survivors of the Black Belt, which in very ancient times stretched uninterruptedly from Africa across southern Asia to the Pacific Ocean. The Asiatic blacks were overwhelmed by other races ages ago, and only a few wild tribes like the Negritos of the Philippines and the jungle dwellers of Indochina and southern India survive as genuine Negroid stocks. All the other peoples of southern Asia, however, are darkened by this ancient Negroid strain the peoples of South India are notably tinged with black blood. As for the pure blacks of the Australasian archipelagos, they are so few in numbers, about three million, and so low in type that they are of negligible importance. Quite otherwise are the blacks of the far west. In the western hemisphere, there are some 25 million persons of more or less mixed black blood, brought thither in modern times as slaves by the white conquerors of the new world still whatever may be the destiny of these transplanted black folk the black man's chief significance from the world aspect must remain bound up with the great nucleus of negro population in the african homeland black africa as i have said lies south of the sahara desert here the negro has dwelt for unnumbered ages the keynote of black history like yellow history has been isolation cut off from the mediterranean by the desert which he had no means of crossing and bounded elsewhere by oceans which he had no skill in navigating the black man vegetated in savage obscurity his habitat being well named the dark continent until the white tide began breaking on its seaports four centuries ago the black world's only external stimuli had come from brown men landing on its eastern coasts or ascending the valley of the nile as time passed both brown and white pressures became more intense, albeit the browns long led in the process of penetration. Advancing from the east and trickling across the desert from the north, Arab or Arabized adventurers conquered black Africa to the equator. And this political subjugation had also a racial side, for the conquerors sowed their blood freely and set a brownish stamp on many regions. As for the whites, they long remained mere birds of passage. Half a century ago, they possessed little more than trading posts along the littorals, their only real settlement lying in the extreme south. Then, suddenly, all was changed. In the closing decades of the 19th century, Europe turned its gaze full upon the dark continent, and within a generation, Africa was partitioned between the European powers. Negro and Arab alike fell under European domination. Only minute Liberia and remote Abyssinia retained a qualified independence. Furthermore, white settlement also made distinct progress. The tropical bulk of Africa defied white colonization, but the continent's northern and southern extremities were climactically white man's country. Accordingly, there are today nearly a million whites settled along the Algerian and Tunisian seaboard while in South Africa, Dutch and British blood has built up a powerful commonwealth containing fully one and a half million white souls. In Africa, unlike Asia, the European has taken root and has thus gained at least local tenures of a fundamental nature. The crux of the African problem therefore resolves itself into the question whether the white man, through consolidated racial holds north and south, will be able to perpetuate his present political power over the indeterminate continental mass which climate debars him from populating. This is a matter of great importance, for Africa is a land of enormous potential wealth, the natural source of Europe's tropical raw materials and foodstuffs. Whether Europe is to retain possession depends, in the last analysis, on the character of the inhabitants. It is, then, to the nature of the black man and his connection with the brown world that we must direct our attention. From the first glance, we see that, in the Negro, we are in the presence of a being differing profoundly, not merely from the white man, but also from those human types which we discovered in our surveys of the brown and yellow worlds. The black man is, indeed, sharply differentiated from the other branches of mankind. His outstanding quality is superabundant animal vitality. In this, he easily surpasses all other races. To it, he owes his intense emotionalism. To it, again, is due his extreme fecundity, the Negro being the quickest of breeders. This abounding vitality shows in many other ways, such as the Negro's ability to survive harsh conditions of slavery, under which other races have soon succumbed. Lastly, in ethnic crossings the negro strikingly displays his prepotency for black blood once entering a human stock seems never really bred out again negro fecundity is a prime factor in africa's future in the savage state which until recently prevailed black multiplication was kept down by a wide variety of checks both natural and social causes combined to maintain an extremely high death rate the negro's political ineptitude never rising above the tribal concept, kept black Africa a mosaic of peoples, warring savagely among themselves, and widely addicted to cannibalism. Then, too, the native regions were usually sanguinary, demanding a prodigality of human sacrifices. The killings ordained by negro wizards and witch doctors sometimes attained unbelievable proportions. The combined result of all this was a wastage of life, which in other races would have spelled a declining population. Since the establishment of white political control, however, these checks on black fecundity are no longer operative. The white rulers fight filth and disease, stop tribal wars, and stamp out superstitious abominations. In consequence, population increases by leaps and bounds, the latent possibilities being shown in the native reservations in South Africa, where tribes have increased as much as tenfold in 50 or 60 years. It is therefore practically certain that the African Negroes will multiply prodigiously in the next few decades. Now, what will be the attitude of these augmenting black masses toward white political dominion? To that momentous query, no certain answer can be made. One thing, however, seems clear. The black world's reaction to white ascendancy will be markedly different from those of the brown and yellow worlds because of the profound dissimilarities between Negroes and men of other stocks. To begin with, the black peoples have no historic pasts. Never having evolved civilizations of their own, they are practically devoid of that accumulated mass of beliefs, thoughts, and experiences which render Asiatics so impenetrable and so hostile to white influences. Although the white race displays sustained constructive power to an unrivaled degree, particularly in its Nordic branches, The brown and yellow peoples have contributed greatly to the civilization of the world and have profoundly influenced human progress. The Negro, on the contrary, has contributed virtually nothing. Left to himself, he remained a savage, and in the past his only quickening has been where brown men have imposed their ideas and altered his blood. The originating powers of the European and the Asiatic are not in him. This lack of constructive originality, however, renders the negro extremely susceptible to external influences the asiatic conscious of his past and his potentialities is cherry of foreign innovations and refuses to recognize alien superiority the negro having no past welcomes novelty and tacitly admits that others are his masters both brown and white men have been so accepted in africa The relatively faint resistance offered by the naturally brave blacks to white and brown conquest, the ready reception of Christianity and Islam, and the extraordinary personal ascendancy acquired by individual Arabs and Europeans all indicate a willingness to accept foreign tutelage, which in the Asiatic is wholly absent. The Arab and the European are, in fact, rivals for the mastership of black Africa. The Arab had a long start, but the European suddenly overtook him and brought not only the blacks but the African Arabs themselves under his sway. It remains to be seen whether the Arab, allying himself with the blacks, can oust his white rival. That some such move will be attempted in view of the brown world's renaissance in general and the extraordinary activity of the Arab peoples in particular seems a foregone conclusion. How the matter will work out depends on three things. 1. The brown man's inherent strength in Africa. 2. The possibilities of black disaffection against white tutelage. 3. The white man's strength and power of resistance. The seat of brown power in Africa is, of course, the great belt of territory north of the Sahara. From Egypt to Morocco, the inhabitants are Arabized in culture and Mohammedan in faith, while Arab blood has percolated ever since the Moslem conquest 12 centuries ago. In the eastern half of this zone, Arabization has been complete, and Egypt, Tripoli, and the Sudan can be considered as unalterably wedded to the brown Islamic world. The zone's western half, however, is in a different case. The majority of its inhabitants are Berbers, an ancient stock generally considered white, with close affinities to the Latin peoples across the Mediterranean. As usual, blood tells. The Berbers have been under Arab tutelage for over a thousand years, yet their whole manner of life seems distinct. They have largely kept their language, and there has been comparatively little intermarriage. Pure-blooded Arabs abound, but they are still, in a way, foreigners. Today, the entire region is under white French rule. Algeria, in particular, has been politically French for almost a hundred years. Europeans have come in and number nearly a million souls. The Arab element shows itself sullen and refractory, but the Berbers display much less aversion to French rule, which, as usual, is considerate of native susceptibilities. The French colonial authorities are alive to the Berbers' ethnic affinities and tactfully seek to stimulate his dormant white consciousness. In Algeria, intermarriage between Europeans and Berbers has actually begun. Of course, the process is merely in its first stages. Still, the blood is there. The leaven is working. And in time, Northwest Africa may return to the white world, where it was in Roman days and where it racially belongs. In the anti-European disturbances now taking place in Algeria and Tunis, it is safe to say that the Arab element is making most of the trouble. It is Northeast Africa, then, which is the real nucleus of Arabism. Here, Arabism and Islam rule unchecked. And in the preceding chapter, we saw how the Senussi order was marshalling the fierce nomads of the desert. These tribemen are relatively few in numbers, but more splendid fighting material does not exist in the wide world. Furthermore, the Arab-Negroid peoples which have developed along the southern edge of the desert so blend the martial qualities of both strains that they frequently display an almost demoniacal fighting power. It is Pan Islamism's hope to use these Arab or Arabized fanatics as an officer's corpse for the black millions whom it is converting to the faith. Concerning Islam's steady progress in Black Africa, there can be no shadow of a doubt. Every candid European observer tells the same story. Quote Mohammedanism, end quote, says Sir Charles Eliot, quote, can still give the natives a motive for animosity against Europeans and a unity of which they are otherwise incapable. End quote. Twenty years ago, another English observer, T R. Threlfall, wrote, quote, Mohammedanism is making marvelous progress in the interior of Africa. It is crushing paganism out. Against it, the Christian propaganda is a myth. The rapid spread of militant Mohammedanism among the savage tribes to the north of the equator is a serious factor in the fight for racial supremacy in Africa with very few exceptions the colored races of africa are preeminently fighters to them the law of the stronger is supreme they have been conquered and in turn they conquered to them the fierce warlike spirit inherent in mohammedanism is infinitely more attractive than is the gentle peace-loving high moral standard of christianity hence The rapid headway the former is making in Central Africa, and the certainty that it will soon spread to the south of the Zambezi. The way in which Islam is marching southward is dramatically shown by a recent incident. A few years ago, the British authorities suddenly discovered that Mohammedanism was pervading Nyasaland. An investigation brought out the fact that it was the work of Zanzibar Arabs. They began their propaganda about 1900. Ten years later, almost every village in southern Nyasaland had its Muslim teacher and its mosque hut. Although the movement was frankly anti-European, the British authorities did not dare to check it for fear of repercussions elsewhere. Another interesting fact, probably not unconnected, is that Nyasaland has lately been the theater of an anti-white Christian propaganda, the so-called Ethiopian church, of which I shall presently speak. Islam has thus two avenues of approach to the African Negro, his natural preference for a militant faith and his resentment at white tutelage. It is the disinclination of the more martial African peoples for a Pacific creed which perhaps accounts for Christianity's slow progress among the very warlike tribes of South Africa, such as the Zulus and the Matabele. Islam is as yet unknown south of the Zambezi while white men universally dread the possibility of its appearance, fearing its effect upon the natives. Of course, Christianity has made distinct progress in the Dark Continent. The natives of the South African Union are predominantly Christianized. In East-Central Africa, Christianity has gained many converts, particularly in Uganda, while on the West African Guinea coast, Christian missions have long been established and have generally succeeded in keeping Islam away from the seaboard. Certainly, all white men, whether professing Christians or not, should welcome the success of missionary efforts in Africa. The degrading fetishism and demonology which sum up the native pagan cults cannot stand, and all Negroes will someday be either Christians or Moslems. Insofar as he is Christianized, the Negro's savage instincts will be restrained and he will be disposed to acquiesce in white tutelage. Insofar as he is Islamized, the Negro's warlike propensities will be inflamed and he will be used as the tool of Arab pan-Islamism, seeking to drive the white man from Africa and make the continent its very own. As to specific anti-white sentiments among Negroes untouched by Muslim propaganda, such sentiments undoubtedly exist in many quarters. The strongest manifestations are in South Africa, where interracial relations are bad and becoming worse. But there is much diffused, half articulate dislike of white men throughout Central Africa as well. Devoid though the African savage is of either national or cultural consciousness, he could not be expected to welcome a tutelage which imposed many irksome restrictions upon him. Furthermore, the African Negro does seem to possess a certain rudimentary sense of race solidarity. The existence of both these sentiments is proved by the way in which the news of white military reverses have at once been known and rejoiced in all over black Africa, spread, it would seem, by those mysterious methods of communication employed by Negroes everywhere and called in our southern states grapevine telegraph. The Russo-Japanese War, for example, produced all over the Dark Continent intensely exciting effects. This generalized anti-white feeling has, during the past decade, taken tangible form in South Africa. The white population of the Union, though numbering 1,500,000, is surrounded by a black population four times as great and increasing more rapidly, while in many sections the whites are outnumbered 10 to 1. The result is a state of affairs exactly paralleling conditions in our own South, the South African whites feeling obligated to protect their ascendancy by elaborate legal regulations and social taboos. The Negroes have been rapidly growing more restive under these discriminations, and unpleasant episodes like race riots, rapings, and lynchings are increasing in South Africa from year to year. One of the most significant, not to say ominous, signs of the times is the Ethiopian church movement. The movement began about 15 years ago, some of its founders being Afro-American Methodist preachers, a fact which throws a curious light on possible American Negro reflexes upon their ancestral homeland. The movement spread rapidly, many Native mission congregations cutting loose from white ecclesiastical control and joining the Negro organization. It also soon displayed frankly anti-white tendencies, and the government became seriously alarmed at its unsettling influence upon the native mind. It was suspected of having had a hand in the Zulu Rising, which broke out in Natal in 1907, and which was put down only after many whites and thousands of natives had lost their lives. Shortly afterward, the authorities outlawed the Ethiopian church and forbid Afro-American preachers to enter South Africa. But the movement, though legally suppressed, lived surreptitiously on and appeared in new quarters. In 1915, a particularly fanatical form of Ethiopianism broke out in Nyasaland. Its leader was a certain John Chilimbwe, an Ethiopian preacher who had been educated in the United States. His propaganda was bitterly anti-white asserting that Africa belonged to the black man, that the white man was an intruder, and that he ought to be killed off until he grew discouraged and abandoned the country. Chilimbwe plotted a rising all over Nyasaland, the killing of the white men, and the carrying off of the white women. In January 1915, the rising took place. Some plantations were sacked, and several whites killed, their heads being carried chilembwe's church where a thanksgiving service for victory was held the whites however acted with great vigor the poorly armed insurgents were quickly scattered and john chilembwe himself was soon hunted down and killed in itself the incident was of slight importance but taken in connection with much else it does not augur well for the future an interesting indication of the growing sense of negro race solidarity Was the Pan African Congress held at Paris early in 1919? Here, delegates from black communities throughout the world gathered to discuss matters of common interest. Most of the delegates were from Africa and the Americas, but one delegate from New Guinea was also present, thus representing the Australasian branch of the black race. The Congress was not largely attended and was of somewhat provisional character but arrangements for the holding of subsequent congresses were made. Here, then, is the African problem's present status. To begin with, we have a rapidly growing black population, increasingly restive under white tutelage and continually excited by pan-Islamic propaganda with the further complication of another anti-white propaganda spread by Negro radicals from America. The African situation is thus somewhat analogous to conditions in Asia. But the analogy must not be pressed too far. In Asia, white hegemony rests solely on political bases, While the Asiatics themselves, browns and yellows alike, display constructive power and possess civilizations built up by their own efforts from the remote past. The Asiatics are today once more displaying their innate capacity by not merely adopting, but adapting white ideas and methods. We behold an Asiatic renaissance whose genuineness is best attested by the fact that there have been similar movements in past times. None of this applies to Africa. The black race has never shown real constructive power. It has never built up a native civilization. Such progress as certain Negro groups have made has been due to external pressure and has never long outlived that pressure's removal, for the Negro, when left to himself, as in Haiti and Liberia, rapidly reverts to his ancestral ways. The Negro is a facile, even eager, imitator. But there he stops. He adopts, but he does not adapt, assimilate, and give forth creatively again. The whole of history testifies to this truth. Meredith Townsend says, None of the black races, whether Negro or Australian, have shown within the historic time the capacity to develop civilization. They have never passed the boundaries of their own habitats as conquerors and never exercised the smallest influence over peoples not black. They have never founded a stone city, have never built a ship, have never produced a literature, have never suggested a creed. There seems to be no reason for this except race. It is said that the Negro has been buried in the most massive of the four continents, and has been, so to speak, lost to humanity. But he was always on the Nile, the immediate road to the Mediterranean and in West and East Africa he was on the sea. Africa is probably more fertile and almost certainly richer than Asia, and is pierced by rivers as mighty and some of them at least as navigable. What could a singularly healthy race, armed with a constitution which resists the sun and defies malaria, wish for better than to be seated on the Nile or the Congo or the Niger, in numbers apparently sufficient to execute any needed work? from the cutting of forests and the making of roads up to the building of cities? How was the Negro more secluded than the Peruvian? Or why was he shut up worse than the Tartar of Samarkand, who one day shook himself, gave up all tribal feuds, and from the sea of Akost to the Baltic and southward to the Nebuds mastered the world? The Negro went by himself far beyond the Australian savage. He learned the use of fire, the fact that sown grain will grow, the value of shelter, and the use of the bow and the canoe, and the good of clothes. But there, to all appearances, he stopped, unable, until stimulated by another race like the Arab, to advance another step." End quote. Unless, then, every lesson of history is to be disregarded, we must conclude that black Africa is unable to stand alone. The black man's numbers may increase prodigiously and acquire alien veneers, but the black man's nature will not change. Black unrest may grow and cause much trouble. Nevertheless, the white man must stand fast in Africa. No black renaissance impends, and Africa, if abandoned by the whites, would merely fall beneath the onset of the browns. And that would be a great calamity. As stated in the preceding chapter, the brown peoples, of themselves, do not directly menace white race areas, while pan-Islamism is at present an essentially defensive movement. But Islam is militant by nature, and the Arab is a restless and warlike breed. Pan-Islamism, once possessed of the Dark Continent and fired by militant zealots, might forge black Africa into a sword of wrath, the executor of sinister adventures. Fortunately, the white man has every reason for keeping a firm hold on Africa. Not only are its central tropics prime sources of raw materials and foodstuffs, which white direction can alone develop, but to north and south the white man has struck deep roots into the soil. Both extremities of the continent are white man's country, where strong white peoples should ultimately arise. Two of the chief white powers, Britain and France, are pledged to the hilt in this racial task and will spare no effort to safeguard the heritage of their pioneering children brown influence in africa is strong but it is supreme only in the northeast and its line of communication with asiatic homeland runs over the narrow neck of suez should stern necessity arise the white world could hold suez against asiatic assault and crush brown resistance in africa in short the real danger to white control of Africa lies not in brown attack or black revolt, but in possible white weakness through chronic discord within the white world itself. And that subject must be reserved for later chapters. Chapter 5 Red Man's Land Red Man's Land is the Americas between the Rio Grande and the Tropic of Capricorn. Here dwells the Amerindian race. At the time of Columbus, The whole western hemisphere was theirs, but the white man has extirpated or absorbed them to north and south, so that today the United States and Canada in North America and the southern portions of South America are genuine white man's country. In the internecine zone above mentioned, however, the Amerindian has survived and forms the majority of the population, albeit considerably mixed with white and to a lesser degree with negro blood. The total number of Indians, including both full-bloods and mixed types, is about 40 million, more than two-thirds of the whole population. In addition, there are several million Negroes and mulattoes, mostly in Brazil. The white population of the intermediate zone, even if we include near-whites, do not average more than 10%, though it varies greatly with different regions. The reader should remember that neither the West India islands nor the southern portion of the South American continent are included in this generalization. In the West Indies, the Amerindian has completely died out and has been replaced by the Negro, while southern South America, especially Argentina and Uruguay, are genuine white man's country, in which there is little Indian and no Negro blood. Despite these exceptions, however, the fact remains that, taken as a whole, Latin America The vast land block from the Rio Grande to Cape Horn is racially not Latin, but Amerindian or Negroid, with a thin Spanish or Portuguese veneer. In other words, though commonly considered part of the white world, most of Latin America is ethnically colored man's land, which has been growing more colored for the past hundred years. Latin America's evolution was predetermined by the Spanish conquest. That very word, conquest, tells the story. The United States was settled by colonists planting homes and bringing their women. It was thus a genuine migration and resulted in a full transplanting of white stock to new soil. The Indians encountered were wild nomads, fierce of temper and few in number. After sharp conflicts, they were extirpated, leaving virtually no ethnic traces behind. The colonization of Latin America was the exact antithesis. The Spanish conquistadores were bold warriors descending upon vast regions inhabited by relatively dense populations, some of which, as in Mexico and Peru, had attained a certain degree of civilization. The Spaniards, invincible in their shining armor, paralyzed with terror these people still dwelling in the age of bronze and polished stone. With ridiculous ease, mere handfuls of whites overthrew empires and lorded it like gods over servile and adoring multitudes. Cortez marched on Mexico with less than 600 followers, while Pizarro had but 310 companions when he started his conquest of Peru. Of course, the fabulous treasures amassed in these exploits drew swarms of bold adventurers from Spain. Nevertheless, their numbers were always infinitesimal compared with the vastness of the quarry. While the population of women immigrants continued to lag far behind that of the men, the breeding of pure whites in Latin America was thus both scanty and slow. On the other hand, the breeding of mixed bloods began at once and attained notable proportions. Having slaughtered the Indian males or brigaded them in slave gangs, the conquistadors took the Indian women to themselves. The humblest man-at-arms had several female attendants, while the leaders became veritable pashas with great harems of concubines. The result was a prodigious output of half-breed children, known as mestizos or cholos, and soon a new ethnic complication was added. The Indians, having developed a melancholy trick of dying off under slavery, the Spaniards imported African Negroes to fill the servile ranks. And since they took negresses as well as Indian women for concubines, other half-breeds, mulattoes, appeared. Here and there, Indians and Negroes mated on their own account, the offspring being known as Zambos. In time, these various hybrids bred among themselves, producing the most extraordinary ethnic combinations. As Garcia Calderon well puts it, quote, Grotesque generations, with every shade of complexion and every conformation of skull, were born in America, a crucible continually agitated by unheard of fusions of races. But there was little Latin blood to be found in the homes formed by the sensuality of the first conquerors of a desolated America." End quote. To be sure, this mongrel population long remained politically negligible. The Spaniards regarded themselves as a master caste and excluded all, save pure whites, from civic rights and social privileges. In fact, the European-born Spaniards refused to recognize even their colonial-born kinsmen as their equals, and Creoles could not aspire to the higher distinctions or offices. This attitude was largely inspired by the desire to maintain a lucrative monopoly. Yet, the Europeans' sense of superiority had some valid grounds. There can be no doubt that the Creole Whites, as a class, showed increasing signs of degeneracy. Climate was a prime cause in the hotter regions, but there were many plateau areas, as in Colombia, Mexico, and Peru, which, though geographically in the tropics, had a temperate climate from their elevation. Even more than by climate, the Creole was injured by contact with the colored races. Pampered and corrupted from birth by obsequious slaves, the Creole usually led an idle and vapid existence, disdaining work as servile and debarred from higher callings by his European-born superiors. As time passed, the degeneracy due to climate and custom was intensified by degeneracy of blood. Despite legal enactment and social taboo, colored strains percolated insidiously into the Creole stock. The leading families, by elaborate precautions, might succeed in keeping their escutcheons clean, but humbler circles darkened significantly despite fervid protestations of pure white blood. Still, so long as Spain kept her hold on Latin America, the process of miscegenation, socially considered, was a slow one. The whole social system was based on the idea of white superiority, and the colors were carefully graded. Quote, in America, end quote wrote humboldt toward the close of spanish rule quote the more or less white skin determines the position which a man holds in society end quote the revolution against spain had momentous consequences for the racial future of latin america in the beginning to be sure it was a white civil war a revolt of the creoles against european oppression and discrimination The heroes of the revolution, Bolivar, Miranda, San Martin, and the rest, were aristocrats of pure white blood. But the revolution presently developed new features. To begin with, the struggle was very long. Commencing in 1809, it lasted almost 20 years. The whites were decimated by fratricidal fury, and when the Spanish cause was finally lost, multitudes of loyalists, mainly of the superior social classes, left the country. Meanwhile, the half-castes who had rallied wholesale to the revolutionary banner were demanding their reward. The Creoles wished to close the revolutionary cycle and establish a new society based, like the old, upon white supremacy, with themselves substituted for the Spaniards. Bolivar planned a limited monarchy and a white electoral oligarchy, but this was far from suiting the half-castes. For them, the revolution had just begun raising the cry of democracy, then became fashionable through the North American and French revolutions. They proclaimed the doctrine of equality regardless of skin. Disillusioned and full of foreboding, Bolivar, the master spirit of the revolution, disappeared from the scene, and his lieutenants, like the generals of Alexander, quarreled among themselves, split Latin America into jarring fragments, and waged a long series of internecine wars. The floodgates of anarchy were opened the result being a steady weakening of the whites and a corresponding rise of the half-castes in the political and social scale. Everywhere, ambitious soldiers led the mongrel mob against the white aristocracy, breaking its power and making themselves dictators. These caudilos were apostles of equality and miscegenation. Says Garcia Calderon, quote, Tyrants found democracies. They lean on the support of the people. The half-breeds and negroes against the oligarchies. They dominate the colonial nobility, favor the crossing of races, and free the slaves." End quote. The consequences of all this were lamentable in the extreme. Latin America's level of civilization fell far below that of colonial days. Spanish rule, though narrow and tyrannical, had maintained peace and social stability. Now all was a hideous chaos, wherein frenzied castes and colors grappled to the death. Ignorant mestizos and brutal Negroes trampled the fine flowers of culture underfoot, while, as by a malignant inverse selection, the most intelligent and the most cultivated perished. These deplorable conditions prevailed in Latin America until well past the middle of the 19th century. Of course, here as elsewhere, anarchy engendered tyranny and strong caudillos sometimes perpetuated their dictatorship for decades, as in Paraguay under Dr. Francia and in Mexico under Porfirio Diaz. However, these were mere interludes of no constructive import. Always the aging lion lost his grip, the lurking hyenas of anarchy downed him at last, and the land sank once more into revolutionary chaos. Some parts of Latin America did indeed definitely emerge into the light of stable progress, but those favored regions owed their deliverance not to dictatorship but to race. One of two factors always operated, either 1. An efficient white oligarchy or 2. Aryanization through wholesale European immigration. Stabilization through oligarchy is best illustrated by Chile. Chilean history differs widely from that of the rest of Latin America. A land of cool climate, no gold, and warlike Iroquoian Indians, Chile attracted the pioneering settler rather than the swashbuckling seeker of treasure trove. Now the pioneering types in Spain come mainly from those northern provinces which have retained considerable Nordic blood. The Chilean colonists were thus largely blonde Asturians or austere, reasonable Basques seeking homes and bringing their women. Of course, There was crossing with the natives, but the fierce Araquian Aborigines clung to their wild freedom and kept up an interminable frontier warfare in which the occasions for race mixture were relatively few. The country was thus settled by a resident squirearchy of an almost English type. This ruling gentry jealously guarded its racial integrity. In fact, it possessed not merely a white, but a Nordic race consciousness. The Chilean gentry called themselves Sons of the Visigoths, scions of Euric and Peleo, who had found in remote Araucania a chance to slake their racial thirst for fighting and freedom. In Chile, as elsewhere, the revolution provoked a cycle of disorder, but the cycle was short and was more a political struggle between white factions than a social welter of caste and race. Furthermore, Chile was receiving fresh ascensions of Nordic blood. Many English, Scotch, and Irish gentlemen adventurers, taking part in the War of Independence, settled down in a land so reminiscent of their own. Germans also came in considerable numbers, settling especially in the colder south. Thus, the Chilean upper classes, always pure white, became steadily more Nordic in ethnic character. The political and social results were unmistakable. Chile rapidly evolved a stable society. Essentially oligarchic and consciously patterned on aristocratic England. Efficient, practical, and extremely patriotic, the Chilean oligarchs made their country at once the most stable and the most dynamic factor in Latin America. The distinctly northern character of Chile and the Chileans strike foreign observers. Here, for example, are the impressions of a recent visitor, the North American sociologist, Professor E.A. Ross. Landing at the port of Valparaiso, he is, quote, struck by signs of English influence. On the commercial streets, every third man suggests the Briton, while a large proportion of the business people look as if they have their daily tub. The cleanliness of the streets, the freshness of the parks and squares, the dressing of the shop windows, and the style of the mounted police remind one of England, end quote. As to the Nordic affinities of the upper classes, quote, one sees in the stature, eye color, and ruddy complexion among the pupils of Santiago College there are as many blondes as brunettes, end quote. Even among the peon, or roto, class, despite considerable Indian crossing, Professor Ross noted the strong Nordic strain, for he met Chilean peasants, quote, whose stature, broad shoulders, big faces, And tawny mustaches proclaimed them as genuine Norsemen as the Icelanders in our Red River Valley. Chile is thus the prime example of social stability and progress attained through white oligarchic rule. Other, though less successful instances are to be noted in Peru, Colombia, and Costa Rica. Peru and Colombia, though geographically within the tropics, have extensive temperate plateau. Here, numerous whites settled down during the colonial period, forming an upper caste over a large Indian population. Unlike Chile, few Nordics came to live in society with those qualities of constructive genius and racial self-respect, which are the special birthright of Nordic man. Unlike Chile again, not only were there dense Indian masses, but there was also an appreciable Negro element. Lastly, the number of mixed bloods was very large. It is thus not surprising that for both Peru and Colombia, the revolution ushered in a period of turmoil from which neither have even yet emerged. The whites have consistently fought among themselves, invoking the half-castes as auxiliaries and using Indians and Negroes as their pawns. The whites are still the dominant element, but only the first families retain their pure blood, and miscegenation creeps upward with every successive generation. As for Costa Rica, it is a tiny bit of cool hill country settled by whites in colonial times and today rises an oasis of civilization above the tropic jungle of degenerate mongrel Central America. The second method of social stabilization in Latin America, Aryanization through wholesale European immigration, is exemplified by Argentina and Uruguay. Neither of these lands had very promising beginnings. Their populations at the revolution contained strong Indian infusions and traces of Negro blood, while after the revolution, both fell under the sway of tyrannical dictators who persecuted the white aristocrats and favored miscegenation. However, Argentina and Uruguay possessed two notable advantages. They were climatically white man's country, and they at first contained a very small population. Since they produced neither gold nor tropical luxuries, Spain had neglected them, so that at the revolution, they consisted of little more than the port towns of Buenos Aires and Montevideo, with a few dependent river settlements. Their vast hinterlands of fertile prairie then harbored only wandering tribes of nomad savages. During the last half of the 19th century, however, the development of ocean transport gave these antipodean prairies value as stock-raising and grain-growing sources for congested Europe and Europe promptly sent immigrants to supply her needs. This immigrant stream gradually swelled to a veritable deluge. The human tide was, on the hold, of sound stock, mostly Spaniards and North Italians, with some Nordic elements from Northern Europe in the upper strata. Thus, Europe looked Antipodean America securely to the white world. As for the colonial stock, it merged easily into the newer Kindred Flood. Here and there, signs of former miscegenation still show, the Argentino being sometimes, as Madison Grant well puts it, suspiciously swarthy. Nevertheless, these are but vestigial traces which the ceaseless European inflow will ultimately eradicate. The large impending German immigration to Argentina and Uruguay should bring valuable Nordic elements. This same tide of European immigration has likewise pretty well Aryanized the southern provinces of Brazil, adjacent to the Uruguayan border. Those provinces were neglected by Portugal, as Argentina and Uruguay were by Spain, and half a century ago, they had a very sparse population. Today, they support millions of European immigrants, mostly Italians and European Portuguese. But with the further addition of nearly half a million Germans, Brazil is, in fact, evolving into two racially distinct communities. The southern provinces are white man's country, with little Indian or Negro blood, and with a distinct color line. The tropical north is saturated with Indian and Negro strains, and the whites are rapidly disappearing in a universal mongrelization. Ultimately, this must produce momentous political consequences. Bearing in mind the exceptions above noted, let us now observe the vast tropical and semi-tropical bulk of Latin America. Here we find notable changes since colonial days. White predominance is substantially a thing of the past. Persons of unmixed Spanish or Portuguese descent are relatively few, most of the so-called whites being, really, near-whites, more or less deeply tinged with colored bloods. It is a striking token of white race prestige that these near-whites, despite their degeneracy and inefficiency, are yet the dominant element, occupying, in fact, much the same status as the aristocratic Creoles immediately after the War of Independence. Nevertheless, the near-whites' supremacy is now threatened. Every decade of chronic anarchy favors the darker half-breeds while below these in turn the indian and negro full-bloods are beginning to stir as in mexico today most informed observers agree that the mixed-bloods of latin america are distinctly inferior to the whites this applies to both mestizos and mulattos albeit the mestizo the cross between white and indian seems less inferior than the mulatto the cross between white and black as for the zambo the indian negro cross Everybody is agreed that it is a very bad one. Analysis of these hybrid stocks show remarkable similarities to the mongrel chaos of the declining Roman Empire. Here is the judgment of Garcia Caldron, a Peruvian scholar and generally considered the most authoritative writer on Latin America. Quote, the racial question, end quote, he writes, quote, is a very serious problem in American history. It explains the progress of certain peoples and the decadence of others, and it is the key to the incurable disorder which divides America. Upon it depend a great number of secondary phenomena, the public wealth, the industrial system, the stability of governments, the solidity of patriotism. This complication of castes, this admixture of diverse bloods, has created many problems. For example, is the formation of a national consciousness possible with such disparate elements? Would such heterogeneous democracies be able to resist the invasion of superior races? Finally, is the South American half caste absolutely incapable of organization and culture? End quote. While qualifying his answers to these queries, Garcia Calderon yet deplores the half caste's decadence. Quote, In the Iberian democracies, end quote, he says, quote, an inferior Latinity. A latinity of the decadence prevails verbal abundance, inflated rhetoric, oratorical exaggeration, just as in Roman Spain. The half caste loves grace, verbal elegance, quibbles even, and aristocratic form. Great passions and desires do not move him. In religion he is skeptical, indifferent, and in politics he disputes in the Byzantine manner. No one could discover in him a trace of his Spanish forefather. Stoical and adventurous, end quote. Garcia Calderon, therefore, concludes quote, the mixture of rival castes, Iberians, Indians, and Negroes, has generally had disastrous consequences. None of the conditions established by the French psychologists are realized by the Latin American democracies, and their populations are therefore degenerate. The lower castes struggle successfully against the traditional rules. The order which formerly existed is followed by moral anarchy, solid conviction by a superficial skepticism, and the Castilian tenacity by indecision. The black race is doing its work, and the continent is returning to its primitive barbarism. End quote. This melancholy fate can, according to Garcia Calderon, be averted only by wholesale white immigration. Quote, In South America, Civilization is dependent upon the numerical predominance of the victorious Spaniard, on the triumph of the white man over the mulatto, the negro, and the Indian. Only a plentiful European immigration can reestablish the shattered equilibrium of the American races." End quote. Garcia Calderon's pronouncements are echoed by foreign observers. During his South American travels, Professor Ross noted the same melancholy symptoms and pointed out the same unique remedy speaking of ecuador he says quote, i found no foreigners who have faith in the future of this people they point out that while this was a spanish colony there was a continual flow of immigrants from spain many of whom no doubt were men of force political separation interrupted this current and since then the country has really gone back spain had provided a ruling organizing element and with the cessation of the flow of spaniards the mixed bloods took charge of things, for the pure white element is so small as to be negligible. No one suggests that the mestizos equal the white stock, either in intellect or in character. Among the rougher foreigners and Peruvians, the pet name for these people is monkeys. The thoughtful often liken them to Eurasians, clever enough but lacking in solidity of character. Natives and foreigners alike declare that a large white immigration is the only hope for Ecuador. End quote. Concerning Bolivia, Professor Ross writes quote, The wisest sociologist in Bolivia told me that the Zambo, resulting from the union of Indian with Negro, is inferior to both the parent races, and that likewise the Mestizo is inferior to both white and Indian in physical strength. Resistance to disease, longevity, and brains. The failure of the South American republics has been due, he declares, to mestizo domination. Through the colonial period, there was a flow of Spaniards to the colonies, and all the offices down to corregidor and cura were filled by white men. With independence, the whites ceased coming, and the lower offices of state and church were filled with mestizos. Then, too, the first crossing of white with Indian, gave a better result than the union between mestizos, so that the stock has undergone progressive degeneration. The only thing, then, that can make these countries progress is a large white immigration, something much talked about by statesmen in all these countries, but which has never materialized." These judgments refer particularly to Spanish America. Regarding Portuguese Brazil, however, the verdict seems to be the same. Many years ago, Professor Agassiz wrote, let anyone who doubts the evil of this mixture of races and is inclined from mistaken philanthropy to break down all barriers between them come to brazil he cannot deny the deterioration consequent upon the amalgamation of races more widespread here than in any country in the world and which is rapidly effacing the best qualities of the white man the negro and the indian leaving a mongrel nondescript type deficient in physical and mental energy End quote. The mongrel's political ascendancy produces precisely the results which might have been expected. These unhappy beings, every cell of whose body is a battleground of jarring heredities, express their souls in acts of hectic violence and aimless instability. The normal state of tropical America is anarchy, restrained only by domestic tyrants or foreign masters. Garcia Calderon exactly describes its psychology when he writes, Precocious, sensual, impressionable, the Americans of these vast territories devote their energies to local politics. Industry, commerce, and agriculture are in a state of decay, and the unruly imagination of the creole expends itself in constitutions, programs, and lyrical discourses. In these regions, anarchy is sovereign mistress. End quote. The tropical republics display, indeed, a tendency toward "...atomic disintegration, given to dreaming. They are led by presidents suffering from neurosis." The stock feature of the mongrel tropics is, of course, the revolution. These senseless and perennial outbursts are often ridiculed in the United States as comic opera, but the grim truth of the matter is that few Latin American revolutions are laughing matters. The numbers of men engaged may not be very large according to our standards, but measured by the scanty populations of the countries concerned, they lay a heavy blood tax on the suffering peoples. The Tatar-Demalian armies may excite our mirth, but the battles are real enough. Often fought out to the death with razor-edged machetes and rusty bayonets, and there is no more ghastly sight than a Latin American battlefield. The commandeerings, burnings, rapings, and assassinations inflicted upon the hapless civilian population cry to heaven. There is always wholesale destruction of property, frequently appalling loss of life, and a general paralysis of economic and social activity. These wretched lands have now been scourged by the revolutionary plague for a hundred years. And W.B. Hale does not overstate the consequences when he says, Most of the countries clustering about the Caribbean have sunk into deeper and deeper mires of misrule, unmatched for profligacy and violence anywhere on earth. Revolution follows revolution. One band of brigands succeeds another. Atrocities revenge atrocities. The plundered people grow more and more abject in poverty and slavishness. Vast natural resources lie neglected while populations decrease, civilization recedes, and the jungle advances." Of course, under these frightful circumstances, the national character, weak enough at best, degenerates at an ever-quickening pace. Peaceful effort of any sort appears vain and ridiculous, and men are taught that wealth is procurable only by violence and extortion. Another important point should be noted. I have said that Latin American anarchy was restrained by dictatorship, but the reader must not infer that dictatorships are halcyon times for the dictated. On the contrary, they are usually only a trifle less wretched and demoralizing than times of revolution. The caudilos are nearly always very sinister figures. Often they are ignorant brutes. Oftener they are bloodthirsty, lecherous monsters. Oftenest they are human spiders who suck the land dry of all fluid wealth, banking it abroad against the day when they shall fly before the revolutionary blast to the safe haven of Paris and the congenial debaucheries of Montmartre. The millions amassed by tyrants like Castro of Venezuela and Zelaya of Nicaragua are almost beyond belief, considering the backward, bankrupt lands they have administered. Yet how can it be otherwise? Consider Critchfield's incisive account of a Caudillo's accession to power: Quote, when an ignorant and brutal man, whose entire knowledge of the world is confined to a few Indian villages and whose total experience has been gained in the raising of cattle, doffs his alpargartes, and machete in hand, cuts his way to power in a few weeks with a savage horde at his back who know nothing of the amenities of civilization and care less than they know. When such a man comes to power, evil and only evil can result. Even if the new dictator were well-intentioned, his entire ignorance of law and constitutional forms of commercial processes and manufacturing arts and of the fundamental and necessary principles underlying all stable and free governments would render a successful administration by him extremely difficult if not impossible but he is surrounded by all the elements of vice and flattery and he is imbued with that vain and absurd egotism which makes men of small caliber imagine themselves to be napoleons or caesars thus do petty despotisms unrestrained by constitutional provisions or by anything like a virile public opinion, lead from absurdity to outrage and crime. End quote. Such is the situation in mongrel ruled America: revolution breeding revolution, tyranny breeding tyranny, and the twain combining to ruin their victims and force them ever deeper into the slough of degenerate barbarism. The whites have lost their grip and are rapidly disappearing the mixed breeds have had their chance and have grotesquely failed the oft-quoted panacea white immigration is under present conditions a vain dream for white immigrants will not expose themselves and less still their women to the horrors of mongrel rule so far then as internal factors are concerned anarchy seems destined to continue unchecked
3: context of white supremacy Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast. This is our third session, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Uh, So we stopped. We're kind of right in the middle of chapter five. Middle of chapter five. We'll finish that uh, chapter off before we wrap things up today. Uh, If you have commentary you would like to share, the number to dial is 641 715. Three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three press star six if you would like to participate if you do not want to use your phone but you still want to participate you can use the free vote line it is linked at black talk radio network if you need the address it is tiny t i n y dot forward slash one race and that is the number one the address again, tiny, dot forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. When you click it, it will open a small window on your screen. Top line or the first line is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is six, four, one seven one five three six four zero next it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three pound excuse me do not put pound just five six four nine four three no pound and then the final line It will ask for a name. You can use a nickname, a real name. You can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all the information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live program. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll hear us on the line. You want to join in, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. When you do that, you'll hear the audio prompt. Press the number one. We will add you to the line. I would encourage folks to keep in mind, and if anything pops up as we are reading, uh, I played Dr. Welsing talking about this book at the beginning of the clip, the segment. uh, That's from the Cress Welsing Institute, where she's talking about this book and encouraging black people to read, study this text. That is the same lecture where she predicts that Donald Trump Uh, was going to win the U.S. presidential election. It's in that same lecture where she connects the two, and she's talking about this book uh, and how this can help you understand how the election went the way it did. So if anything stands out as we're reading that relates to the uh, election or you think ties into what has happened over the past four days, feel free to add that as we proceed. Uh, And, almost forgot, the debate between W.E.B. DuBois and Mr. Stoddard. I was a little late last week in posting the link, but it's been available. If you need it, I can post it again. I put it on my Facebook page last week. Uh, readily available. People that emailed me, I emailed it to them. So if you read that and you want to add that into the dialogue as we proceed, that is great as well. Uh, but the 1929 debate between Du Bois and Stoddard. All the folks who dialed in with the hand up should be with us. If you have commentary... Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
4: Uh, Greetings, Gus. Uh, Greetings to everybody uh, on the call and listening. Uh, Wow. You know, as I said, you know, two weeks ago, I was like, well, wait until you get to the chapter of the black man. And sure enough, you see this chapter just seething and like really seething with racism. Uh, and it is just very, very much uh, intellectually racist. Uh, you can tell by this one chapter that this book was strictly for white people. And you can tell that he is capitalizing on a lot of stuff that, you know, I guess during that time, unless you were, you know, following W.E.B. Du Bois or Edward Blyton or Henry Sylvester Williams, or even Carter G. Woodson, you would know nothing about, you know, African history, because he just completely dismisses it. Um, he And the language he uses, like when he says, uh, when he uses, uh, all people of Southeastern Asia were darkened by this ancient Negro strain, which is, you know, means that, you know, being black was a disease. Uh I think, in the first uh first page or paragraph he talks about uh in the Western hemisphere, there were twenty five million persons of more or less mixed black blood, and he also uh talks about uh towards the end of it says uh from the world aspect we must remain they must remain bound up with the great nucleus of the Negro population in the African homeland, which basically means Uh, You know how most black folks would like to be proud of their, you know, their third generation Irish or, you know, some European, uh, you know, lineage in their family. Well, basically he's saying, don't care, you're black, you're African, you're inferior. So that's what he's basically saying there. Uh, He says his outstanding quality is super abundant animal vitality, which means that we don't think. So, uh, you know, we have, anim- we, you know, we just go on animalistic instinct and we're not, you know, very great thinkers. Uh, this one right here got really, really was interesting. He says, the Negro's ability to survive the harshest conditions of slavery under which other races have soon succumbed. Basically, that is a built-in excuse to say, well, right, well slavery wasn't really genocide because you guys survived it so that you know that that's his that's his way of saying that you know uh we we're not all reparations because you know not too many people died you know we, we it wasn't really genocide so that right there was very interesting how he worded that uh did appreciate you know when i read the book i did appreciate the uh when he talked about uh john uh john chimbeilwe uh of uh of malawi, malawi when he uh uh started, the revol- uh started the uprising there. Uh, I consider him the Nat Turner of Africa. So that was actually interesting, and I actually learned something from that. So I never heard about this guy until I read Lopper Stotter's book. Um, when he talked to, in, the, in the chapter of The Red Man's Land, uh, the term Zambo, you know, and very similar to Sambo, you know, uh, which was in uh, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, the the uh the uh the slave that was in that so uh, that was a pretty interesting uh pretty interesting uh connection there even though it was like off one letter so uh when he talked about how the uh Europeans absorbed you know the 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 native people there you know very interesting language there you know, not, not you know, not killing, not, you know, causing genocide or taking their land. They absorbed them. So, and uh, that is, uh, that's about it for now. I'll meet my line.
3: Appreciate that. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Okay. Hello, can I be heard? Oh,
5: great. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm going out. Greetings uh, to everyone on the on the line, and this is misunderstanding. I was um let me hopefully my battery won't why out, but I was um a bit confused about a section that I just read. Um, it says uh, such is the situation in Mongrel Ruled America: Revolution breeding revolution, tyranny breeding tyranny and the twain combining to ruin their victims and force them ever deeper into the slough of degenerate barbarism. The whites have lost their grip and are rapidly disappearing. The mixed breeds have had their chance and have grotesquely failed. Um, (laughs) Excuse me. Um, What I was confused about the... uh, I guess to to put context to that, what Mongol ruled America? What was he referring to? Um, and I, I did kind of miss some of the uh, the session, so I apologize for that. I'm gonna definitely read and catch up, but I was a bit confused about that uh, that section. If anyone would be so kind to uh, try to explain that to me,
3: uh, my interpretation just from Uh, Context, when he says America here, I don't, number one, I think it's both geographic and uh, historical context. I think, number one, when he says America, I don't think he means United States of America. I think, uh, particularly in the portions that we read today, I think he's almost talking about the whole hemisphere, because at times he's talking about things that are happening in South America, and at other times he's talking about things that are happening in North America uh, and throughout, uh, and even what they call Latin America. Uh, And then historically as well, it seems like a lot of this is going, like, now again, this book was published in 1920, but a lot of it seems like it's talking about things that happened, uh, or at least his interpretation of things that happened uh, years, decades before, if not longer, before 1920, when this book was originally produced. So, uh, published, sorry. I don't think he uh, is meaning per se, uh, the United States, and certainly not like the eastern part of the United States, the impression I got would be like uh, western part of North America, maybe some of the regions that uh, now might be considered Mexican or formerly were a part of what was called Mexico, those regions, and saying that those areas had a lot of individuals uh, who had a lot of what he calls Negro blood, uh, or non-white blood, he had a lot of people, even if they weren't necessarily Negroes, they were not white people and uh, these regions, uh, were dominated and had a heavy amount of these people. Uh, that's my interpretation. Uh, if that Does that make sense, the caller that's still here? I don't know if she got disconnected or not, but if you're here, you can let us know if that makes sense. If anybody else, if you want to respond to the question that she put on the table, anybody else want to respond to her question?
6: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I would say you you have it uh, pretty accurate. I think you got it about correct. Um, he was not specifically speaking about the U.S. Um, he was speaking about, and I would say northern the northern, like you said, the northern hemisphere. He was speaking, I think, in in that respect, mostly to Central and South America, um, and like you were saying, the hem- the Western Hemisphere in general. Um, so, yeah, I think you really did uh, hit the nail on the head as far as um, your interpretation. Um, of the text in terms of answering her questions. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with that.
3: Right on. Uh, if anybody else wants to respond to that question, feel free. Uh, misunderstanding, if you got disconnected. Oh, okay, she's back in now. I don't know if you got to hear uh, my response. Roz responded as well. I don't know if you got to hear those responses.
5: Oh, hi, Gus, and uh, that's my apology. I did not, but I will listen to the, um, the uh the archive, uh, for the sake of time, uh, regarding the response, I caught the last part of what Rod was saying. Um, was it in reference to so-called South America area?
3: I guess. Uh, it was. Um, oh, yeah. Well,
6: go, ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was going to say. Um, no, I was saying that. Um, I, well, Gus basically spoke to the fact that. He wasn't specifically speaking about the Northern Hemisphere, the North, North America specifically. He was speaking about the Western Hemisphere, and then at times he was referring to Central and South America. Um, so, so essentially that's the area that he's focusing on when you're hearing that discussion um, that you were bringing up as far as the section that you did here. Um, so I was just reiterating that that um, Gus's interpretation was accurate and that um, m- basically he was speaking about either the entire Western Hemisphere or mostly Central and South America, and that would include and, Mexico and, and, and um, of course, South America speaks for itself.
5: Okay, and thank you both for um, providing your, uh, your answers, and I will listen to the archives. From here, I'll mute my line and make sure I charge my battery up. <laughs>
6: Thanks. Hey guys, can I um, pick up um, on the text itself? For sure. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Was um, the the first the first caller? Was he the narrator?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, oh, okay, I'm they sound kind you. of similar on this one. No, I was not the narrator.
6: <laughs> oh, okay, okay, yeah, you sounded kind of similar for a second there. Well, uh, again, big up to the narrator and, and um, uh, to the first speaker as well. Uh, great, great interpretation of the text. Um, this guy is a straight liar. (laughs) That's one thing I'm pulling out, like major in this text, like white people are the most quintessential liars I've ever come across. Um, he starts at the beginning of chapter four, there's a paragraph where he says, black Africa, as I stated lies south of the Sahara desert here, the Negro has dwelt for unnumbered ages the keynote of black history like yellow history has been isolation cut off from the Mediterranean by the desert, which he had no means of crossing and bounded elsewhere by oceans, which he had no skill in navigating the black man vegetated in savage obscurity, his habitat being well-named the dark continent, quote unquote. And, um, this is just insane because just in this one paragraph, um, He is isolating black people by saying that they were so dumb, they had no means of crossing the Mediterranean. And then they also had no means of crossing the the oceans either because they had no skill in navigating. And later on in the text, he literally says that East Africa, I would say the Nile Valley region in Ethiopia, and West Africa were both on the seas. So he's basically saying later on in the same the same uh, uh, chapter that we were on the sea. And, of course, the Indian Ocean, the word Indian itself denotes black because black people were all over the Indian continent. It was Ethiopians who settled India in the first place. And we maintained contact both in trade and, and, and socially with that part of the world. So when white people d- did finally get the means of navigating, they saw us on that ocean all the time. And the word India in itself denotes black. And then the Atlantic Ocean was called the Ethiopian Ocean because they saw black people traveling back and forth from West Africa to America and back and forth because we maintained contact with the um, black people who we knew lived here that we were kinfolk with. So, and this was something that was happening for thousands upon thousands of years. So he's literally lying and then telling the truth later on in the same text. And, um, also he's, there's this, there was so many things I highlighted. So I don't want to just, I just don't want to, um, get into too much because then I'll be talking forever because he really just did a, a number on quite a few things. Um, he says on page 53 now what will be the attitude of these augmenting black masses toward white political domination to that momentous query no certain answer can be made one thing however seems clear the black world's reaction to white ascendancy will be markedly different from those of brown and yellow the brown and yellow worlds because of the profound dissimilarities between negroes and the men of other stocks to begin with the black peoples have no historic past having never to me never having evolved civilizations of their own. They are practically devoid of that accumulated mass of beliefs, thoughts, and experiences, which render Asiatics so impenetrable and so hostile to white influences. Although the white race displays sustained constructive power to an unrivaled degree, particularly in its Nordic branches, the Brown and yellow peoples have contributed greatly to the civilization of the world and have profoundly influenced human progress. Um, he says later on, the lack, this lack of originality, however, renders the Negro extremely susceptible to external influences. The Asiatic, conscious of, the Asiatic, excuse me, conscious of his past and his potentialities, is chary of foreign innovations and refuses to recognize alien superiority. The Negro, having no past, welcomes novelty and tacitly admits that others are his masters. Both brown and white men have been so accepted in Africa, the relatively faint resistance offered by the naturally brave blacks to white and brown conquest, the, re- the ready reception of Christianity and Islam, and the extraordinary personal ascendancy acquired by individual Arabs and Europeans all indicate a willingness to accept foreign tutelage in the Asiatic in the Asiatic is wholly absent. And, late, and he basically is talking, when he's talking here, um, he says that black people are brave, but yet we're at the same time docile that we accept. <laughs> we have just wholesale accepted European and Arab domination. And he's, he's just doing a lot of propagandizing and double talking that makes no sense to me. And he's not thoroughly accurate with his history. He talks about the Berbers and the Berbers themselves were indigenous black people from the African continent who happened to be lighter skinned African people and they had their own language they had their own script um and they had been in the desert for thousands of years and knew their way around the desert the sahara itself probably better better than any other group that lived in that area and they were also known to uh rob caravans um at times and they were very very proficient with swords so he's not really accurate with that then he goes into discussing uh uh, part, different parts of Africa where, where uh, Christianity had taken hold. Um, and he discussed the Zulu people. He discussed the Matabele. Um, he talked about Uganda, South Africa. Um, and then he also talked about, yeah, he talked about, um, oh yeah, and he talked about uh, the Ethiopian church. And it's interesting because the oldest Christian church was the, Egyptian Coptic Church the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is the second oldest church in the, on the planet and the oldest Christian nation is Ethiopia and the reason that the areas that he named accepted Christianity so readily is because the Zulu themselves the Matabele the people of Uganda which is the origin of Nile Valley civilization these were all people that were part of the Nile Valley complex and they're the origin of Christianity is, the, is their religious uh, practices, their spiritual practices. So when Christianity was presented to them, it was basically their own religion refashioned with, with white people as, uh, as the, uh, the godhead and essentially, but the essential structure of the religion was something they were familiar with. And originally, these deities, or Jesus, whoever you want to call him, was actually black, and it was over time that they lightened him up. So his his entire, uh, just the, the the stuff he's talking about is just... Uh, hideously wrong and in a lot of ways he's just literally lying back and forth. Um, I'll stop there because there's so much that I highlighted is ridiculous. Hopefully I'll get a chance to talk later and I'll just give someone else a chance to speak. Thank you and I'll meet my line.
3: Appreciate that. Uh, any other folks that we have not heard from? Anybody we have not have uh, heard from have commentary they wanted to share?
1: Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh i was just uh sitting here in uh and thinking and uh i came up with this understanding uh first first of all uh at the time of that book being made uh it probably was was prescribed directly for white people uh, it also reminds me of another person that Dr. Welsing has mentioned more than once, Joseph Goebbels, uh, who was an expert in propaganda uh, uh, in the means of promoting the system of racist white supremacy. And I submit that this book is basically what designed for the same purpose. Uh, and perceivably the targeted white people is for is in their quote unquote halls of academia so they can continue to spread the, uh, the, uh, racist, uh, lies and propaganda. Uh, and I'm talking about the the colleges and universities, uh, being that uh, the means of tr- of uh sending books around the world was still somewhat in its primitive stage. Uh it would have t- taken longer, of course a lot longer back then in nineteen twenties than it is today. Uh and once again, uh outside of this part of the world, those same uh white controlled uh institutions uh, to further spread the propaganda and and lies, uh, intentionally, excuse me, intentionally lying uh, 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 on the subject when it came to especially non-white people, and also uh, the so-called accredited uh, uh, positive uh, uh, input by quote-unquote white people. Uh, that, uh, Mr. started along with others who may have helped him with this book and books of this nature, uh, uh, this was the purpose of it, uh, to, uh, purposely, uh, pump up, uh, white people and basically, uh, use complicated sounding language to, to, uh, as a charade, so to speak to uh make the uh lies uh uh, uh be concrete be c- uh cemented uh, thoroughly uh there's been plenty of books of this nature uh over the years and i mean even recent uh, uh much more recent uh it, it, it's, it's a pattern it's definitely a pattern uh, uh quite interesting in that way uh, but I also think about Mr. Fuller when, uh, he basically cautions non-white people, especially non-white black people, uh, to not even romanticize what, what may be the truth, uh, <laughs> because we're still under a system of racist white supremacy. And actually what's, what's the most important question that should be asked to Mr. Stoddard or any other white person uh uh of that of that same like is well what are you going to do about it do about it you know uh it should be the concern but uh it's quite interesting on what what on this especially this particular uh, uh reading uh because uh uh it it goes right in pattern with 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 uh, propaganda that was was uh, widespread during especially during that time in the world itself. Thank you.
3: Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, anybody else that we uh, have not heard from at all? Uh, anybody else who have commentary that we have not heard from at all?
7: Can I be here?
3: Yes, ma'am.
8: Greetings, folks. This is um, 1842, and... um. A few things that jumped out to me in this reading, um, as I was considering Trump as the president elect is that they keep track of all the numbers so more my population would be so that they can perfect genocide. Like I don't think it wouldn't really be productive to do it all at once. I don't think like that just doesn't seem effective. So, but like in the book that he's always mentioning how many people are wherever they are. And, um, I found a website where they still do that. I mean, they do it with the census, you know, but there's this website that's, um, very well made, like very detailed and everything where populations of people are, um, still being tracked. And and it's funny because I wanted to find how many white people are on the planet right now. And, you know, Google couldn't just give me an answer for that, which is how I stumbled upon this website. Um, I think that Trump's appeal to white people globally, but it's especially here, is that he speaks directly to their conscious or subconscious desire to, like, squash, terminate, act genocide on all non-white people, um, and to really weaken non-white people's like numbers. Um, because, and he said it in there, I don't remember where, because I actually just listen. I don't actually read along, but somewhere in what we read, he mentions, he says that whites are disappearing. So whites have been disappearing since I think whites even formulated that whites were a thing. Because if they were disappearing, you know, then, and they're still disappearing now, then the, the fact is they're disappearing. And I think if they were talking about it then, and they're talking about it now, they've always known and will always know that they're disappearing. So that's something that whether they, like, admit it to us or not, they're very much aware that they are not a majority and that they are a very tiny minority and that they are disappearing. And Trump was able to make them feel that they, again, were in power because white people pretty much dealt with this black man in office for the past eight years. And not just that, but then black people... You know even changing in whatever subtle ways we did whether we were holding our head up high or you know just whatever it was that we were doing white people were just like this is too much and then all the other things that white people might have observed that they talked about amongst themselves when we weren't around and trump was able to pretty much encode um speak to them in ways that made them feel like they could clamp down or establish re law and order or secure their future. And it's funny because um, it's the minute he was announced, that he's already talking about space. And um, I just for some reason think that that's like fascinating because white people, as I, I wrote it down someplace, um, I mean, I called them like a virus, but also that they're just very warlike colonial people. So this whole, it's not like a space war or a space race, but like a need to secure just an all white space where there's like no one else. Um, and I think maybe that's what space might be about and white people just, anyway. Um, and then he, he talks about our fecundity, which I looked up, uh, pretty much our proliferation and procreating um, and that's another thing. Like it must be well known by most everybody And we make jokes about it, but when we really think about it, I mean, you know, we don't stop. There's just, we keep making babies all around the world despite conditions. And I've heard it uh, said in many different ways. Like, I can't quote and I cannot tell you, so I do apologize, but they talk about how even in, um, while we were oppressed and enslaved, how we were still having babies and how so many other groups of people wouldn't do that, but we were still just very productive and so they must know that so while they're dying out we no matter what thrive well i won't say thrive we survive um and we can work under the worst conditions and not only that we still produce babies nonstop. so like i think they since they know that trump was able you know if they know that then trump saying well we need to build a wall to keep out those you know brown people or non-white people that appeals to them, because and, and Trump was able to appear appeal, excuse me, to so much of white people's fears that non-white people are just going to take over. I think like that's the base of it. Non-white people don't want to lose their gooddies, don't want to lose their power. And Dr. Francis Sets, who quoted someone who defined power as the ability to enact oh, goodness. hold on, I like wrote it down because um, she said so many things and I was listening. But um, if you give me a second, I'll find it. But anyway, oh, power is the ability to obtain the outcome that you want. And so, like, if they ever lose that ability, like, right now, white people know that they can do whatever they want to do unchecked. Um, and when President Obama was in office, they had to fear that for eight years. And when the police began to become more visible in their lynching of black people, um, and there was such a backlash. It was like, well, hold on. We've always been doing what we want to do. And so now there's a black man in office, and we can't. Trump pretty much said, I'm gonna come back, and I'm gonna make sure that white people, we we will always be white, and we are gonna make sure that everyone else who is non-white knows how to treat us, be around us, do what we want to do. Um, in the eight years, y'all bought up six billion rounds of ammunition, guns. Everybody's locked loaded, and we prepared to stand ground. And he didn't say it exactly like that, but he said it. And that's what white people fed on. And that's why I think they put him in office. Um, and, um, and, it, well, and I'll just say, like, in general, like, the, the book is just propaganda. We've said that before. Um, and, but the way that the book is also written is it makes the reader or the listener almost feel like you can't ask why there's a lot of postulation of, like, certain things that are, he presents them as though they're fact, although they're not fact, which would prevent you from saying why, right? Um, Well, that's, I won't say right, that's something that I felt, because if it it hadn't been for the context with which we're reading the book, and I was just a passive reader, I wouldn't ask why, because the information is presented as so factual. Um, But then somewhere in there, he mentions the word neurosis which is when I actually said, well, why? (laughs) Because we were talking about all this inferiority and all of these things of non-white people, but then to mention neuroses means, you know, like a mental ailment or mental illness, and that would make me wonder, well, why? And if we said why, then we would have to talk about what white people have actively been doing to all non-white people around the globe that prevents non-white people from being able to tell accurate history for one, um, and also to come up from under the subjugation of white people. Um, and I thought that was also because I was listening, and it, I always get, like, frustrated with the words, the, the constant verboseness of this book. However, that was uh, that also might be my own victimization of having been the legacy of a people who were, it was forbidden and illegal to read for 400 years that I would have that kind of reaction to a piece written this way. Um, but when I put that into perspective, 400 years of this type of a material having been written and propagated throughout the world in Europe, you know, passed down, I mean, for hundreds of years, while we were prevented from reading at all, at all, they were over here spreading all of this for 400 years. And so for them, it is fact. And for us, we come up on it like, well, you know, yeah, anyway, Um and so, but, you know, I have some other stuff. Oh, and, I, yeah, the piece, the um, debate, absolutely. Like, he does it even in the debate. Um, they're just master manipulators with the words, master manipulators with presenting the information um, and beating around the bush and not getting to the point and just also lying. But it's um clearly evident because du- Dr. Dubois is very clear and saying this is why it is this way right like even let's begin by defining culture let's begin by define let's even just begin by defining negro and to be very clear concise direct laser-like and laser-like into to the point where it on the other hand does this whole you know pussyfooting as you guess like to say pussyfooting around it and not really getting to the point which creates a whole lot of confusion I have more to say, but I can wait for the second part. And, folks, you know, I'll chime in later. Thank you for uh, letting me speak.
3: For sure. Uh, He actually uh, says quite a few times comments about uh, white people disappearing just in the section that we read this week uh, alone, uh, where he says the whites have lost their grip and are rapidly disappearing. Uh, The tropical north is saturated with Indian and Negro strains and the whites are rapidly disappearing in a universal uh many times through. Uh, the person uh, at 1847, did you have uh, commentary you wanted to share? Uh, caller 1847, last four digits, 1847, did you have commentary or are you just listening? Maybe you hit your mute button, maybe you're just listening. Uh, pick out a few of the comments that I noted and then if we have any time we'll get a few more uh, comments from some of our listeners in before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, Some of the things, I think uh, everyone was absolutely correct in just continuing to use the term uh, propaganda. I think a lot of times one of the tactics that racists will use is that it will be a book or an article maybe even a film, whatever it is Joseph Goebbels was mentioned. They'll have a project and it will be presented as though this is entertainment or this is some sort of serious scholarship, you know, that we sat around in a lab and did research for you know, five years. Uh, It'll be given this sort of presentation when in actuality, it's just white supremacy propaganda. Uh, The information might be totally bogus. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, entertaining but it's white supremacy entertaining you. Concepts that are degrading the value of black life or uh, concepts that are justifying, rationalizing the need for white power, the maintenance of global white domination, and whatever needs to be done in order to maintain that. And I think this book is definitely uh, in, that, in that category, but it's not the only one. Uh, whites crank out material like this all the time uh pat buchanan has a book that's uh kind of similar to this uh he ran for president not that long ago i think it's the west uh the death of the west i think it's the death of the west but yes even if that's not the exact title he has many books pat buchanan that are in that similar line and dr welsing has referenced some of his literature over the years uh as well uh let's see some of the, the first few things that stood out just it seemed like a preponderance i think uh 1842, she just commented where she talked about uh, fecundity, and he has uh, all of these, you know, $20 multi syllabic words uh, to just at the end of it get right back to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and the white, veneer, white fear of black balls and the dominance of black genetic material. It's just all throughout this entire section, maybe throughout the book, but it seemed really intense this section, and particularly the chapter on black people. Uh, where he starts off, he says uh, he owes his intense emotionalism, talking about the Negro, to uh, to it, his sexual drive. Again, uh, is due to his extreme fecundity, the Negro being the quickest of breeders. This abounding vitality shows in many other ways, such as the Negro's ability to survive the harsh conditions of uh, slavery. The only point there, uh, a previous caller just mentioned that, is that Uh, the American Slave Coast uh, by the sublets. They were guests on the program earlier this year. The enslavement of black people particularly not exclusive to but particularly in this part of the world uh, what is known as the United States whites required they mandated they necessitated the rape of black people males and females rape of black females in particular was required to sustain the enslavement of black people just something to make sure that that gets added and it's not like black people were just uh procreating while being shackled and enslaved at any point uh this was forced uh, if you're not breeding uh then you know maybe we kill you or torture you or whatever the case may be uh i think Roz and, and several others just the deception, the same thing we end up this week where you have all these whites talking about they hate Donald Trump and he's not qualified and he's a bigot and he's a sexist and not my president. Blah, blah, blah. And then he ends up winning. They go in the booth by themselves and they pull the lever for Trump. Same thing. Whites lie all the time on the text talking about black people are dumb and ignorant and morons. They have no history. They've never accomplished anything. They're just bar- uh, brutes and savages. And he even goes back to the uh, the old school line saying that black people were just notorious Uh, cannibals uh, as he was writing uh, which is old school uh, white supremacy 101 Um, continuing I thought it was interesting when he's talking about different uh, religious practices where he says insofar as he is Christianized, the Negro's savage instincts will be restrained and he will, uh, he will be disposed to acquiesce in white tutelage. I thought that was pretty interesting. Not that I'm you know, shocked given what we've read uh, about racism, white supremacy, but he had already uh, written, I think truthfully about, how so-called Arabs, uh, had enslaved and brutalized black people on the continent and had used the religion of Islam to do so, uh, and even beaten a lot of whites to the punch, uh, in this process. It just, it intrigued me, uh, where he was talking about this battle on the continent, uh, in terms of missionary work, uh, that Christ- white Christians should do more of this because it will... Uh, break the Negro tendency to resist. Uh, and they'll go ahead and accept white rule if we can give them a religious practice that has uh, a white figure as the, uh, a white figurehead uh, at the pinnacle of the religious practice and that you know, if they get on Islam, they'll fight back and they'll resist and there'll be a lot more work for us. I thought that was an interesting contrast. I don't know if people had any thoughts on that. Um, and it goes on uh, where, again where he says as to specific anti-white sentiments among Negroes untouched by Muslim propaganda. Such sentiments undoubtedly exist in many quarters. The strongest manifestations are in South Africa where the interracial relations are bad and becoming worse. Uh, but there is much diffused half articulate dislike of white men throughout Central Africa as well. Uh, and again he attains this. Uh, they don't have uh, the influence of christianity and maybe even some others whether it's muslims or negro preachers from america have come over and spoiled uh the well-behaved negros on the continent um let's see what else do we get here yeah i thought that was interesting as well when he talks about some of these uh black preachers who've come over uh and trying to battle racism white supremacy globally and recognizing how black people are being mistreated uh worldwide that sort of thing is uh, continuous, uh, at least in my opinion, anytime where you see non-white people, particularly black people, where they are recognizing white supremacy as a problem that spans way beyond geography and understanding it in that, uh, in that way, racists really recognize that as a threat and they aggressively work to keep that sort of thing from happening. Um, let's see... Uh, da, 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 da. What else did I want to make sure we got? Uh, I think, just in terms of how this book is written, I think also the metaphors uh, have stood out. Number one, the vocabulary that's being employed in this book, I've had to look up. Quite a few words. I think racist. They do that a lot. I certainly uh, am not against expanding your lexicon so that you know more terms. You have more tools uh, in your toolbox that you can use to articulate your views on racism or counter racism. But again, I think that is a part of the package of white supremacy to use all of these different terms and the way that it's written. It's not just a vocabulary. It's 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 a very uh, wordy, circumloquacious, pussyfooting way uh, of writing all of this. It's not just these are some, you know, incompetent niggers. Uh, he's not saying it that way. It's very, very verbose to just get to that same point. Uh, but that's a, part, a major part of the white supremacy package where they will, uh, and then when you stumble, and fumble through reading it and have to look up every other word and don't quite understand or mispronounce it. Like, oh, see, I told you, you're so ignorant. You're so, I told you. That's the exact same thing with the bell curve, which I would uh, compare to this in terms of the, the, the purpose for why a, a book like that exists, why it has to be written. But it's the same type of thing. And uh, I would just encourage... Don't, be, uh, don't feel intimidated, because that's a big part of it as well. Don't feel intimidated. Don't feel stupid. Uh, do not feel as though there's something uh, defective about your intelligence. I think as uh, 1842 just mentioned, you we weren't even allowed to read for a long time. Uh, that at the end of the day, should I be mistreated? Let's say I'm illiterate, can't read it all, can't get off page one of your book, Mr. Stoddard. Should I be mistreated? And we can just go right from there. I think caller in Florida mentioned, what are you going to do at the end of the day after you get done with all of your big fancy Ivy league words? Um, anything else I want to be, Oh, the, uh, the metaphors. He had so many of them. He has one where he says, uh, and soon a new ethnic comp, uh, complication was added. The Indians having developed a melancholy trick of dying off under slavery. Isn't that something? The, the audacity Uh, for this race soldier to write something like that. He has a bunch of them. He has another one. This is later in the book where he says uh, the mongrel's political ascendancy produces precisely the results which might have been expected. These unhappy beings, every cell of whose body is a battleground of jarring heredities, express their souls in acts of hectic violence and aimless instability. What? What? (laughs) And in, in my view... When you write something in this matter where you've got all of this hyperbole and the metaphors and that sort of thing, sometimes it can overwhelm you. And so as the previous caller said, you don't question why. You don't question, well, is that even true? You just accept it because it just, it's so much, it just comes at you. And that's sort of uh, thats one of the ways that propaganda works, in my opinion. You use a lot of metaphors, sometimes you use jokes, you use false comparisons uh, to get your emotions uh, working in terms of how you view these people, even the, the metaphors and what have you, the flowery diction that he uses when he's describing the incompetence of black people, the ignorance of black people, the sexual potency of black people, all of those metaphors and what have you. They do so much work on your your brain and conditioning how you think about black people conditioning how you read this book uh in fact i'll stop here and compare because this is not the first time we've read a book that had you know really ele- elevated diction and may have been even a little bit challenging to read because it's so wordy compare this to urugu just in terms of the use of language vocabulary metaphors and how the arguments are structured one just to think on you have to respond just compare in terms of how the books are structured Yerugu, Dr. Marimba-Ani, first book we read in our book club. Compare the two. I'll pause there. Anybody that we missed who had commentary they wanted to make sure they got in before we get to the second audio segment? Everybody satisfied? Anything else folks want to make sure they got in before we get to the second audio segment? Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah, I had a
6: couple things I would like to touch on. Um, the first thing, I love that you brought up the fact of him bringing up uh, or discussing online, saying that uh, all over the, the African continent that blacks were cannibals, there is no documented history anywhere on the African continent of black people eating people. Now, if you go to Asia, that is true. Like, if you're talking about Papua New Guinea... And some of the other islands in the South Pacific, that is true. Um, And and the reason that they ate people was because they did not have uh, many living animals to hunt on those small islands. So eating people became at some point in their culture a necessity, and it also was something they did um, as an act of... uh, Partaking of another valiant warrior and, part, and 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 imbuing themselves with his power via eating his heart or some other you know body part or whatever the case may be. So he is absolutely lying with that, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think this section also details how white people, like the, pre, the previous female caller said, they spread like a virus. Like he's explaining how they literally have gone about dominating the rest of the planet, and I think he does that pretty well. And he also outlines pretty well. Um, I think it was, uh, well, I know Dr. John Henry Clark talked about it and absolutely um, uh, Chan- Dr. Chancellor Williams in regards to the the buffer class, uh, the mixed race buffer class. He really outlines that pretty well about how these white people were, were making these these uh, mixed race children and, and putting them up as their, their army, essentially. Um, so I think that he does a good job of that at aspect as well. He also is not telling the truth when he said at one point that all of the Um, indigenous people in the Caribbean islands were all killed off. That is not correct. It depends on which island you went to. There were specific islands where they were all killed off. Um, Where my family's from in Trinidad, they were not. You also had places like St. Vincent, um, uh, Dominique, um, Dominica, excuse me, which is where my my paternal grandmother was from. And she's also indigenous as well. She's a black Carib from there. So it's, it's just not true. But there's a couple of things that he said in that that I found very telling in the text as well. On um, page 57, um, he wrote, excuse me, um, as to specific anti-white sentiments among Negroes untouched by Muslim propaganda, such sentiments undoubtedly exist in many quarters. The strongest manifestations are in South Africa, where interracial relations are bad and becoming worse, but there is much diffused, half-articulate dislike of white men throughout Central Africa as well. Devoid, devoid, though the African, excuse me, devoid, though, the African savage is of either national or cultural consciousness, he could not be expected to welcome a tutelage which imposed many irksome restrictions upon him. Furthermore, the African Negro does not seem to possess certain rudimentary sense of race solidarity a certain, excuse me, a certain rudimentary sense of race solidarity. Existence of both of these sentiments is proven by the way in which the news of the white military reverses have at once been known and rejoiced all over black Africa. Spread, it would seem, by those mysterious methods of communication employed by Negroes everywhere called in our southern states grapevine telegraph. The Russo-Japanese War, for example, produced all over the dark continent intensely exciting effects. And I found that very interesting because this reminded me of um, Chancellor Williams' work as well, The Destruction of Black Civilization, where he discusses the fact that um, before white people and Arabs invaded the continent and did the things that they've done to put us in the situation that we're in, that there was a, a pan-African understanding throughout the continent um, in regards to us understanding that we had a common origin and that there, the before white people came, there was very little to almost no violent conflict between African groups, and um, he actually did a, a great. Uh, Roz,
3: could, yes. Is it possible you could hang tight? You could uh, finish it up yeah, on sure, the second. Sure. Cool. I'm gonna sure. just check. Uh, we're going to the second audio. I'm just gonna give 30 seconds to double check to make sure we didn't miss a caller. Who, if someone who didn't have a chance to share at all. Uh, oh, we did hear from you. We did hear 1847. I think we did hear from you. Correct. The caller at 1847 greetings. A little bit of back echo. I don't know what that is. Let's try again and see if it's clear. Oh, greetings. Greetings. Um, greetings. Uh, let's see. Is it possible? I don't know how long you're going to need for your commentary, but we are about to get to the second audio segment. Uh, if you want to yeah. give something that's like 30 seconds now, and then you can go first when the second audio segment concludes, or you can just wait. Uh, And get, you know, everything you want to share in after the second audio segment concludes. It's up to you, sir.
9: Uh, Thanks. Uh, Yeah, I'll just wait.
3: Okay. Well, we will go ahead and get started right now, and you'll be our first caller once this segment concludes. Uh, So we are in the middle of Chapter 5. This is the Red Man's Land, Chapter 5. And as soon as this is done... We'll get our second audio segment uh, out of the way, and then we'll continue with our conversation. Uh, This is Context of White Supremacy, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, audio segment
0: number two. In fact, new conflicts loom on the horizon. The Indian masses, so docile to the genuine white man, begin to stir. The aureole of white prestige has been besmirched by the near-whites and half-castes who have traded so recklessly upon its sanctions. Strong in the poise of normal heredity, the Indian full-blood commences to despise those chaotic masters who turn his homelands into bare gardens and witches' sabbaths. An Indianista movement is today on foot throughout the mongrel-ruled America. It is most pronounced in Mexico, whose interminable agony becomes more and more a war of Indian resurgence but it is also starting along the west coast of South America. Long ago, wise old Professor Pearson saw how the wind was blowing. Noting how whites and near-whites were, quote, everywhere fighting and intriguing for the spoils of office, end quote, he also noted that the Indian masses, though relatively passive and seemingly unobservant, were yet, quote, conquering a place for themselves in other ways than by increasing and multiplying, end quote and he concluded quote, "the general level of the autochthonous race is being raised it is acquiring riches and self-respect and must sooner or later get the country back into its hands" End quote. recent visitors to the south american west coast note the signs of indian unrest some years ago lord bryce remarked of bolivia quote, "there have been indian risings and firearms are more largely in their hands than formerly" they so preponderate in numbers that any movement which united them against the upper class might could they find a leader have serious consequences End quote. "still more recently professor ross wrote concerning peru quote, "in cuzco i met a gentleman of education and travel who is said to be the only living lineal descendant of the incas he has great influence with the native element and voices their bitterness and their aspirations" He declares that the politics of Peru is a struggle between the Spanish mestizos of Lima and the coast and the natives of Cuzco and the interior, and predicts an uprising unless Cuzco is made the capital of the nation. He even dreams of a Quechua Republic, with Cuzco as its capital and the United States its guarantor, and she is guarantor of the Cuban Republic, end quote. And of Bolivia, Professor Ross writes, quote, Lately there has been a general movement of the Bolivian Indians for the recovery of the lands of which they have been robbed piecemeal. Conflicts have broken out, and, although the government has punished the ringleaders, there is a feeling that, so long as the exploiting of the Indian goes on, Bolivians are living in the center of a slumbering volcano. End quote. Since the white man has gone and the Indian is preparing to wrest the scepter of authority from the mongrel's worthless hands, let us examine this Indian race to see what potentially it possesses of restoring order and initiating progress. To begin with, there can be no doubt that the Indian is superior to the Negro. The Negro, even when quickened by foreign influences, never built up anything approaching a real civilization. Whereas the Indian, though entirely surrounded from the rest of mankind, evolved genuine polities and cultures like the Aztec of Mexico, the Inca of Peru, and the Maya of Yucatan, the Indian possesses creative capacity to an appreciable degree. However, that degree seems strictly limited. The researches of archaeologists have sadly discounted the glowing tales of the conquistadors and the empires of Mexico and Peru though far from contemptible, certainly rank well below the achievements of European and Asiatic races in medieval and even in classical times. The Indian possesses notable stability and poise, but the very intensity of these qualities fetters his progress and renders questionable his ability to rise to the modern plane. His conservatism is immense. With incredible tenacity, he clings to his ancestral ways and exhibits a dull indifference to alien innovation. Of course, the Indian subraces differ considerably among themselves, but the same fundamental tendencies are visible in all of them. Says Professor Ellsworth Huntington, quote, the Indians are very backward. They are dull of mind and slow to adopt new ideas. Perhaps in the future they will change, but the fact that they have been influenced so little by 400 years of contact with the white man does not afford much ground for hope judging from the past there's no reason to think that their character is likely to change for many generations those who dwell permanently in the white man's cities are influenced somewhat but here as in other cases the general tendency seems to be to revert to the original condition as soon as the special impetus of immediate contact with the white man is removed end quote. and lord bryce writes in similar vein quote, "with plenty of stability they lack initiative" They make steady soldiers and fight well under white or mestizo leaders, but one seldom hears of a pure Indian accomplishing anything arising either through war or politics or in any profession above the level of his class. End quote. The truth about the Indian seems to be substantially this. Left alone, he would probably have continued to progress, albeit much more slowly than either white or Asiatic peoples. But the Indian was not left alone. On the contrary, he was suddenly failed by brutal and fanatical conquerors who uprooted his native culture and plunged him into an abject servitude. The Indian's spiritual past was shorn away and his evolution was perverted. Prevented from developing along his own lines and constitutionally incapable of adapting himself to the ways of his Spanish conquerors, the Indian vegetated, learning nothing and forgetting much that he knew. This has continued for 400 years. Is it not likely that his ancestral aptitudes have atrophied or decayed? Slavery and mental sloth have indeed scarred him with their fell stigmata. Says Garcia Calderon, quote, Without sufficient food, without hygiene, a distracted and laborious beast, he decays and perishes. To forget the misery of his daily lot, he drinks, becomes an alcoholic, and his numerous progeny present the characteristics of degeneracy. End quote. Furthermore, the Indian degenerates from another cause, mongrelization. Miscegenation is a dual process. It works upward and downward at one and the same time. In Latin America, hybridization has been prodigious, the hybrids today numbering millions. In some regions, as in Venezuela and parts of Central America, there are very few full-blooded Indians left, hybrids forming practically the entire population. Now, on the whole, the white or mestizo crossing seems hurtful to the Indian. For what he gains in intelligence, he more than loses in character. But the mestizo crossing is not the worst. There is another, much graver racial danger. The hot coastlands swarm with Negroes, and the Zambo or Negro Indian is universally adjudged the worst of matings. Thus, for the Indian, white blood appears harmful, while black blood is absolutely fatal. Yet the mongrelizing tide sweeps steadily on. The Indian draws no color line and continually impairs the purity of his blood and the poise of his heredity. Bearing all of the above facts in mind, can we believe the Indian capable of drawing mongrel-ruled America from its slow of despond? Can he set it on the path of orderly progress? It does not seem possible. Assuming for the sake of argument complete freedom from foreign intervention the indian might in time displace his mongrel rulers provided he himself were not also mongrelized but the present indianista movement is not a sign of indian political efficiency not the harbinger of an indian renaissance it is the instinctive turning of the harried beast on his tormentor maddened by the cruel vagaries of mongrel rule and increasingly conscious of the mongrel's innate worthlessness The Indian at last bears his teeth. Under civilized white tutelage, the Indianista movement would have been practically inconceivable. However, guesses as to the final outcome of an Indian-Mongrel conflict are academic speculation, because Mongrel America will not be left to itself. Mongrel America cannot stand alone. Indeed, it never has stood alone, for it has always been bolstered up by the Monroe Doctrine. But for our protection, outside forces would have long since rushed into this political and economic vacuum, and every omen today denotes that this vacuum, like all others, will presently be filled. A world close-packed as never before will not tolerate countries that are a torment to themselves and a dangerous nuisance to their neighbors. A world half-bankrupt will not allow vast sources of potential wealth to lie in hands which idle or misuse. Thus. It is practically certain that mongrel America will presently pass under foreign tutelage. Exactly how is not yet clear. It may be done by the United States alone, or what is more probable in Pan-American cooperation with the lusty young white nations of the Antipodean South. It may be done by an even larger combination, including some European states. After all, the details of such action do not lie within the scope of this book since they fall exclusively within the white man's sphere of activity. There is, however, another dynamic which might transform Mongrel America. This dynamic is Yellow Asia. The Far East teems with virile and laborious life. It thrills to novel ambitions and desires. Avid with the urge of swarming myriads, it hungrily seeks outlets for its superabundant vitality. We have already seen how the Mongolian has earmarked the whole Far East for his own. And in subsequent pages, we shall see how he also beats restlessly against the white world's race frontiers. But mongrel America, what other field offers such tempting possibilities for Mongolian race expansion? Vast regions of incalculable, unexploited wealth, sparsely inhabited by stagnant populations cursed with anarchy and feeble from miscegenation. How could such lands resist the onslaught of tenacious and indomitable millions? The answer is self-evident. They could not resist, and such an invasion once begun would be consummated with a celerity and thoroughness perhaps unexampled in human history. Now the yellow world is alive to this momentous possibility. Japan in particular has glimpsed in Latin America precious avenues to that racial expansion which is the keynote of Japanese foreign policy. For years, Japanese statesmen and publicists have busied themselves with the problem. The Chinese had, in fact, already pointed the way, for during the later decades of the 19th century, Chinamen frequented Latin America's Pacific coast, economically vanquishing the natives with ease, and settling in Peru in such numbers that the alarmed Peruvians hastily stopped the inflow by drastic exclusion acts. The successes of these Chinese pioneers, humble coolies entirely without official backing, have fired the Japanese imagination. The Japanese press has long discussed Latin America in optimistic vein. Count Okuma is a good exemplar of these Japanese aspirations. Some years ago, he told the American sociologist Professor Ross, quote, South America, especially the northern part, will furnish ample room for our surplus, end quote. To his fellow countrymen, Count Okuma was still more specific. In 1907, he stated in the Tokyo Economist, that the Japanese were to overspread the earth like a cloud of locusts, alighting on the North American coasts and swarming into Central and South America. Count Okuma expressed a strong preference for Latin American countries as fields for Japanese immigration. Because most of them were, quote, much easier to include within the sphere of influence of Japan in the future, end quote. And the Japanese have supplemented words with deeds, especially since 1914. Japanese activity in Latin America has been ubiquitous and striking. The West Coast of South America in particular is today flooded with Japanese goods, merchants, commercial missions, and financial agents, seeking concessions of every kind. Our State Department has had to exercise special vigilance concerning Japanese concession hunting in Mexico. Japan's present activity is of course mere reconnoitering. Testings and mappings of terrain for possible later action on a more extensive scale. One thing alone gives Japan pause. Our veto. Japan knows that real aggression against our southern neighbors would spell war with the United States. Japan does not contemplate war with us at present. She has many fish to fry in the Far East. So in Latin America, she plays safe. But she bids her time. In Latin America itself, she has friends even partisans. Japan seeks to mobilize to her profit that distrust of the Yanqui, which permeates Latin America. The half-castes, in particular, rage at our color line and see in the United States the nemesis of their anarchic misrule. They flout the Monroe Doctrine, caress dreams of Japanese aid, and welcome Nippon's pose as the champion of color throughout the world. Japanese activities in Mexico are of especial interest. Here. Japan has three strong strings to her bow. 1. Patriotic dislike of the United States. 2. Mestizo hatred of the white gringo. 3. The Indianista movement. In Mexico, the past decade of revolutionary turmoil has developed into a complicated race war of the mestizos against the white or near-white upper class and the Indian full-bloods against both whites and mestizos. The one bond of union is dislike of the gringo, which often rises to fanatical hatred. Our war against Mexico in 1847 has never been forgotten, and many Mexicans cherish hopes of revenge and even aspire to recover the territories then ceded to us. During the early stages of the European War, our military unpreparedness and apparent pacifism actually emboldened some Mexican hotheads to concoct the notorious Plan of San Diego. The conspirators plotted to rouse the Mexican population of our southern border, sow disaffection among the southern Negroes, and explode the mine at the psychological moment by means of a reconquering equitable army invading Texas. Our whole southwest was to be rejoined to Mexico, while our southern states were to form a black republic. The projected war was conceived strictly in terms of race, reconquering equitable army to be composed solely of latins negroes and japanese the racial results were to be decisive for the entire white population of both our south and southwest was to be pitilessly massacred of course the plot completely miscarried and sporadic attempts to invade texas during 1915 were easily repulsed nevertheless this incident reveals the trend of many mexican minds The framers of the plan of San Diego were not ignorant peons, but persons of some standing. The outrages and tortures inflicted upon numerous Americans in Mexico during recent years are further indications of that widespread hatred which expresses itself in vitriolic outbursts, like the following editorial of a Mexican provincial paper written during our chase after the bandit Villa in 1916. Above all, do not forget that at a time of national need, humanity is a crime and frightfulness is a virtue pull out eyes snatch out hearts tear open breasts drink if you can the blood in the skulls of the invaders from the cities of yankee land in defense of liberty be a negro be a caligula that is to be a good patriot peace between mexico and the united states will be closed in throes of terror and barbarism End quote all this is naturally gist for the Japanese mill. Especially interesting are Japanese attempts to play upon Mexican Indianista sentiment. Japanese writers point out physical and cultural similarities between the Mexican native races and themselves, deducing their form innate racial affinities springing from the remote and forgotten past. All possible sympathetic changes were rung during the diplomatic mission of Señor de la Barra, to Japan at the beginning of 1914. His reception in Tokyo was a memorable event. Señor de la Barra was greeted by cheering multitudes, and on every occasion the manifold bonds between the two peoples were emphasized. This, of course, occurred before the European War. During the war, Japanese-Mexican relations remained amicable. So far as official evidence goes, the Japanese government has never entered into any understandings with the Mexican government, though some Mexicans have hinted at a secret agreement. And one Mexican writer, Gutierrez de Lara, asserts that in 1912, Francisco Madera, then president, quote, threw himself into the arms of Japan, end quote, and goes on, quote, we are well aware of the importance of this statement and of its tremendous international significance, but we make it deliberately with the full confidence in our authority. Not only did Madero enlist the ardent support of the South American republics in the cause of Mexico's inviolability, but he entered into negotiations with the Japanese minister in Mexico City for a close offensive and defensive alliance with Japan to checkmate United States aggression. When during the fateful 12 days battle in Mexico City, a rumor of American intervention, more alarming than usual, was communicated to Madero. He remarked coldly that he was thoroughly anxious for that intervention, for he was confident of the surprise the American government would receive in discovering that they had to deal with Japan. End quote. But after all, an official Japanese-American understanding is not the fundamental issue. The really significant thing is Mexican popular antagonism to the United States which is so widespread that Japan could, in a crisis, probably count on Mexican benevolent neutrality, if not on Mexican support. The present Carranza government of Mexico is, of course, notoriously anti-American. Its consistent policy, notably revealed in its complacence toward Germany and its intrigues with other anti-American regimes, like those of Colombia and Venezuela, makes Mexico the center of anti-Americanism in Latin America. As for the numerous Japanese residents in Mexico, they have lost no opportunity to abet this attitude. Here, for instance, is the text of a manifesto signed by prominent members of the Japanese colony during the American-Mexican crisis of 1916. Quote, Japanese, Mexico is a friendly nation. Our commercial bonds with her are great. She is, like us, a nation of heroes who will never consent to the world domination of a hard and brutal race, as are the Yankees. We cannot abandon Mexico in her struggle against a nation supposedly stronger. The Mexicans know how to defend themselves, but there is lacking aid which we can furnish. If the Yankees invade Mexico, if they seize the California coasts, Japanese commerce and the Japanese Navy will face a grave peril. The Yankees believe us impotent because of the European war. And we will be expelled from American soil and our children from American schools. We will aid the Mexicans. We will aid Mexico against Yankee rapacity. This great and beautiful country is a victim of Yankee hatred toward Japan. Our indifference would be a lack of patriotism, since the Yankees already are against us and our divine emperor. They have seized Hawaii. They have seized the Philippine Islands near our coasts and are now about to crush Underfoot, our friend and possible ally, and injure our commerce and imperil our naval power. The fact is that Latin America's attitude toward the yellow world tends everywhere to crystallize along race lines. The half castes, naturally hostile to the United States, see in Japan a welcome offset to the Colossus of the North. The self conscious Indianista elements likewise heed Japanese suggestions of ethnic affinity. On the other hand, the whites and near-whites instinctively react against Japanese advances. Even those who have no love for the Yankee see in the Mongolian the greatest of perils. Garcia Calderon typifies his point of view. He dreads our imperialistic tendencies. Yet he reproves those Latin Americans who, in a Japanese-American clash, would favor Japan. Quote, victorious, end quote, he writes. Quote, the Japanese would invade Western America and convert the Pacific into a vast, closed sea, closed to foreign ambitions, mare nostrum, peopled with Japanese colonies. The Japanese hegemony would not be a mere change of tutelage for the nations of America. In spite of essential differences, the Latins overseas have certain common ties with the people of the United States. A long-established religion, Christianity, and a coherent European Occidental civilization. Perhaps there is some obscure fraternity between the Japanese and the American Indians, between the yellow men of Nippon and the copper-colored Quechuas, a disciplined and sober people. But the ruling race, the dominant type of Spanish origin which imposes the civilization of the white man upon America, is hostile to the entire invading East. End quote. White men throughout Latin America generally echo these sentiments. Chile and Argentina repulse Oriental immigration, and the white oligarchs of Peru dread keenly Japanese designs directed so specifically against their country. Very recently, a Peruvian, Dr. Jorge M. Corbacho, wrote most bitterly about the Japanese infiltration into Peru and adjacent Bolivia, while some years ago, Signor Augustine Edwards, owner of the leading Chilean periodical, El Mercurio, denounced Count Okuma's menaces and called for a Pan-American rampart against Asia from Bering Strait to Cape Horn. Quote, Japanese immigration, end quote, asserted Senor Edwards, quote, must be firmly opposed, not only in South America, but in the whole American continent. The same remark applies to Chinese immigration in short these threats of akuma should induce the nations of south america to adopt the monroe doctrine an invincible weapon against the plans and intentions of that empire of the orient which has so lately risen up to new life and already manifests so dire a greed of conquest End quote. from central america similar voices arise a Salvadorian writer urges political federation with the United States as the sole refuge against the yellow peril to avoid becoming quote, "slaves and utterly insignificant" end quote. and a well-known Nicaraguan politician señor Moncada writes in similar vein the momentous implications of mongolian pressure upon latin america were admirably described by professor ross quote, provided that no barrier be interposed to the inflow from man stifled asia end quote. he says quote, it is well within the bounds of probability that by the close of this century south america will be the home of 20 or 30 millions of orientals and descendants of orientals but asiatic immigration of such volume would change profoundly the destiny of south america for one thing It would forestall and frustrate that great immigration of Europeans, which South American statesmen are counting on to relieve their countries from mestizo, unprogressiveness, and misgovernment. The white race would withhold its increase or look elsewhere for outlets. For those with the higher standard of comfort always shun competition with those of a lower standard. Again, large areas of South America might cease to be parts of Christendom some of the republics there might come to be as dependent upon asiatic powers as the cuban republic is dependent upon the united states End quote. very pertinent is professor ross's warning as to the fate of the indian population a warning which indianista believers in japanese affinity should seriously take to heart whatever might be the lot of the latin american whites professor ross points out that an in, "asiatic influx" would seal the doom of the Indian element in these countries. The Indians could make no effective economic stand against the wide-awake, resourceful, and aggressive Japanese or Chinese. The Oriental immigrants could beat the Indians at every point, block every path upward, and even turn them out of most of their present employments. In great part, the Indians would become a cringing Sudra caste. Tilling the poorer lands and confined to the menial or repulsive occupations, filled with the despair and abandoning themselves even more than they do now to pisco and cocoa, they would shrivel into a numerically negligible element in the population." End quote. Such are the underlying factors in the Latin American situation. Once more, we see the essential instability of mere political phenomena. Once more, we see the supreme importance of race. No conquest could have been completer than that of the Spaniards four centuries ago. The Indians were helpless as sheep before the mail clad conquistadors. The military conquest was succeeded by complete political domination. The Indian even lost his cultural heritage and became a passive tool in the hands of his white masters but the Spaniards did not seal his title deed with the indelible signet of race. Indian blood remained numerically predominant, and the conqueror further weakened his tenure by bringing in black blood, the most irreducible of ethnic factors. The inflow of white blood was small, and much of what did come lost itself in the dismal swamp of miscegenation. Lastly, the whites quarreled among themselves. The result was inevitable. The colonial whites... Triumphed only by aid of the half castes, who promptly claimed their reward. A fresh struggle ensued, ending, save in the Antipodian regions, in the triumph of the half castes, but these in turn had called in the Indians and Negroes. Furthermore, the half castes recklessly squandered the white political heritage. So the colored full blood stirred in their turn, and a new movement began which, if allowed to run its natural course, might result in complete de Aryanization. In other words, the white race has been going back and Latin America has been getting more Indian and Negro for the past hundred years. This cycle, however, now rears its end. Latin America will be neither red nor black. It will ultimately be either white or yellow. The Indian is patently unable to construct a progressive civilization. As for the Negro, he has proved as incapable in the new world as in the old. Everywhere, his presence has spelled regression, and his one new world field of triumph, Haiti, has resulted in an abysmal plunge to the jungle level of Guinea and the Congo. Thus is created a political vacuum, and this vacuum unerring nature makes ready to fill. The Latin American situation is indeed akin to that of Africa. Latin America, like Africa, cannot stand alone. An exorable dilemma impends, white or yellow the white man has been first in the field and holds the central colored zone between two strong bases north and south where his tenure is the unimpeachable title of race the yellow man has to conquer every step though he has already acquired footholds and has behind him the welling reservoirs of asia nevertheless white victory in latin america is sure if internecine discord does not rob the white world of its strength in latin america As in Africa, therefore, the whites must stand fast, and stand together.
3: Context of white supremacy. That will wrap us up for this week. Uh, We'll start next week. We'll be at the beginning of Chapter 6. That is, the. uh, so this is Part 11, The Ebbing ebbing Tide of White, and then Chapter 6 is The White Flood. And I actually think that is the title of another book. I'm going to have to go back uh, and check. Dr. Ann Patel Gray. Uh, she's a non-white female in Australia. She was a guest on the program in 2011. Uh, and I think her book is titled The Great White Flood. Uh, and It's about the invasion of white race soldiers on the continent, uh, I guess, Dash Island of uh, <clears throat> Australia uh, and the myriad of ways that they practice white supremacy there. But I have to go back and check. I think, uh, I think that is the title of her book to see if that was influenced by Stoddard. Uh, so if folks have commentary, uh, our caller at one eight four seven, you will be first up, but anybody else that has commentary, they would like to share the number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound press star six. If you would like to participate, if you have commentary on the book, how it relates to the election, uh, Dr. Wellsing's prediction, uh, and or the debate uh, between Lothrop Stoddard and W.E.B. Dubois. Uh Feel free to comment. Please don't wait till the last minute. We have a little less than thirty minutes left to go. Uh, the caller at one eight four seven. Thank you for your patience, sir. Did you have commentary you wanted to share?
9: Oh, uh, we always just say something brief. But I do also notice how the language that the person who wrote this book uses. Uh it's. More of the same stuff that I'm used to when it comes to white supremacy. Um, Ambiguous sounding words, um, vague, uh, or just beating around the bush. You know, using a whole lot of words, but really saying a little bit or 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 saying much. I don't know. It's like they use cognitive. Dissonance, or something in their in their writing too, like uh, where with the use of the words, it makes you absorb an idea without uh, measuring it or reasoning it out, so to speak. You know, and it's basically what I got got get from a lot of this writing that I'm hearing. Um, it's just amazing how this person is so lofty, in, you know, lofty in his his opinion of, of of the Natives and the Indians and, you know, the way he thinks himself a master of these people. It's just amazing, you know, and uh, it's not, I don't find it has much substantiation in it at all. It's just more like a, uh, arrogance shielded with words and wordiness. That that's about all that
3: I really want to say right now. Hmm. Appreciate that. Thank you kindly. Um, let's see Thomas in New York. Did you have commentary you wanted to share? You should be with us.
7: Um, good evening, Gus, um, Thomas in New York. um, yeah, I, I just got a chance to listen to the second segment. I didn't get a chance to listen to the first one yet. But I've been following along. And um this book is um you know, uh, a huge uh, propaganda piece for white supremacy. Um, it's very inaccurate with a lot of the history it's saying, um, but some of it is accurate. Um, I just find it to be very interesting. Um Man, it's just um, from the start where somehow um, life starts in Europe. <laughs> yeah, think black people. I guess somehow you know it's just been a spiraling, um, you know, you know, thing of a book of inaccurate uh, white supremacist propaganda, and um, I just find it to be um, extremely interesting. And I could definitely see why Doctor Wilson chose this um, book for us to read. Um, I'll mute my line because I didn't get the chance to hear the first segment I don't want to um, jump the gun with my comments I was just uh, happy to participate for the short time I can thank you
3: appreciate that as well uh, other folks who chimed in if you have commentary uh, if you want to participate please don't wait till the last minute feel free I know uh, our editor our narrator since we have uh, two folks working hard on this so we have our narrator uh Non-white male, victim of racism. And then we have our editor, uh, who was the narrator when we did Asada Shakur's biography. The editor, she said that it might be relevant if people want to check out the documentary uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, It came out some years back, but she said it it, uh, matches very nicely with what's being covered in the text. Uh, It's on YouTube and some other outlets that people want to investigate. Other people that we haven't heard from have commentary? I heard? Yes, ma'am. If you could speak up a tad, that would be great.
8: Sure. Is that better? Yes'm. Um. Okay. Um, I was giving some thought, some more thought to uh, why Dr. Welkman predicted Trump and this book and said it at the same time. And I pretty one of the thoughts that I had was that white people couldn't elect Clinton. Um, as an ex-president, because she couldn't promise to keep their interests at the forefront. And, like, she might have, maybe she said some things in code or something like that, but I think she showcased, like, could you ask a few other people about that, like, if they thought she just had one too many black people? And I think she did. I think maybe she just went overboard, maybe with Jay-Z, maybe Beyonce, I don't know which which one did it. But I think at some point, She just had too many black people speaking on her behalf. And so what that might have translated to white people is that she was more aligned with non-white people and not white people, which meant that they really just couldn't, like she couldn't win because she could just destroy everything. Um, And uh, so then also that, oh, and so that would make her a in-lover in like lesser, refined circle behind closed doors. They might've just been calling her that because I mean, she had everybody um, speaking for her and I don't think that they liked that too much. And then another thing that I kind of thought about was that, perhaps white men began to feel themselves emasculated by the quote unquote explosion of black m- male manhood um, with president Obama who exuded manhood um, and not, I mean, and, and so I guess people could argue that, but to me, um, a man, and then you have sex, and then so all the police are uh, lynching black males, and then the, like you could like certain images and propaganda that was around of like black black males like reacting or just like I don't want to stand up or or just being more potent, I guess, even though it didn't tear down racism or like, supremacy. You definitely could see it, although some could argue that there was definitely the other side of the propaganda with the a lot of images of emasculated black men, there were a few of black men uh, attempting manhood, I guess I could put it. I might not be as codified in saying it, but I hope you all understand what I'm saying. And so pretty much when, you know, white men began to feel a little bit of emasculated or that they're not even or that black men would become men and that that was something like now they had like someone to look to. That's why they had to take down, you know, um, Bill Cosby and, and tear down uh, Nate Parker's movie. And then also the birth of the nation. It was just too much for white men to take. And um so then that's when white women stepped in and was like, and I'm about to just be real regular right now, but, but oh, well we going to have our men's back and decided to make sure that a white male who would, number one, protect white people's interests, but also, number two, I don't give off. Like, he's a machismo kind of man, and the white women are defending his sexist remarks and sexist behavior and all that and saying that it's okay because he's a man, thus validating white manhood to kind of stomp all the black manhood that we've been um, seeing. And so that was just that collusion and that cohesion between white people. And then I've noted that uneducated people means unread people, which but doesn't mean stupid. But it also means that they learn through word of mouth. So a conversation could go, hey, we're not producing enough kids. And then they're like, well, there's not enough resources either. And then they're like, the Mexicans are taking over. And then they're like, blacks are sucking up all the resources and they're criminal. And then everybody in the room is like, vote for Trump. And that could possibly be one way the conversation goes when there are no black people in the room. And I think that's, that's kind of what I'm getting from this text along with the election of Trump. Thank you. Appreciate that
3: 1842. Uh, Do we have other folks who had commentary? Uh, Your line should be open.
6: Um, oh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll try to be, uh, b- brief. Um, so in the section that I read previously, um, he talked about how in other parts of Africa, when they would hear about any sort of military victories that, um, other countries had that people would rejoice all over the continent. And, um, it It just reminds me of um what we do here as far as our united independent um ability to understand that you know any any victory against white supremacy is a good thing and to rejoice in that um again to me, that just also alluded to that that understanding that we had a common foe, a common issue racism white supremacy, and that um at that point we were collectively working towards the same goal. I think um a lot less of us are working towards the same goal, whether it's United, independent, or collective at this point, um, than, than we should. So hopefully um we'll continue to make headway in that direction. Um also, uh oh, yeah, I found this this section very uh interesting. He uh he wrote, The whole story testifies to this truth. As the Englishman Meredith Townsend said. None of the black races, whether Negro or Australian, have shown within the historic time the capacity to develop civilization. They have never passed the boundaries of their own habitats as conquerors and never exercised the smallest influence over peoples not black. They have not founded a stone city, have never built a ship, have never produced a literature, have never suggested a creed. There seems to be no reason for this except race. It is said that the Negro has been buried in the most massive of the four continents and has been, so to speak, lost to humanity, but he was always on the Nile, the immediate road to the Mediterranean, and in the West and East Africa, he was on the sea. Africa is probably more fertile and almost certainly richer than Asia, and is pierced by rivers as mighty, and some of them at least as navigable. What would a singularly healthy race, armed with a constitution which resists the sun and defies malaria, wish better than to be seated on the Nile or the Congo or the Niger in numbers amply sufficient to execute any needed work from the cutting of forests and the making of roads up to the building of cities and I found that interesting that's that's something I alluded to before where he said that we 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 couldn't we were um, bound by land could, could not sail the Mediterranean or the oceans and then here he's basically saying both Western and eastern Africans were on the sea so he there's the lie right there um also he's also associating black people as being the Nile Valley civilization founders, which at the same time, that's the propaganda was being propagated that these people were white Africans, what they would call white Hamites. Um, so I find it interesting that he's actually being honest there. And also he also tells another truth when he talks about, um, uh, having people in amp- amply sufficient numbers to execute any needed work from the cutting of forest to the making of roads up to the building of cities. Because in, on the Niger, that's exactly what they found, was cities. And they had to actually cut down forests in order to do so. And one of the biggest um, uh, biggest walls in the world is in actually in Nigeria, and it's in the middle of the forest. Um, so it's very interesting that he's actually lying and telling the truth in different sections of the same book, which alludes to the confusion and his uh, heavy verbiage of multisyllabic words, like you said, so um, so accurately. Um, also, there was one last thing. Oh, there was an area, um, a, a sentence on page 67, where he writes, uh, here are signs of former miscegenation, here um, here, and there are signs of former miscegenation show the argentino being sometimes as madison grant well puts it suspiciously swarthy i thought that that term was just <laughs> just incredible i've never heard of those two words put together suspiciously swarthy and um it also just alludes to the origins of argentinian people being a dark skinned people who have been uh, quite heavily miscegenated to the point that um they've attempted to dilute excuse me, the black blood um, out of these people. So I just find that very telling. Um, And I think, yeah, I'll I'll do my line there and get someone else the time to speak. Thank you very much.
3: Right on. Uh, Other folks uh, have content they wanted to share. (laughs) Um, Anyone we haven't heard from?
6: Oh, excuse me, Gus, I wanted to ask if you could send me the um, debate between uh, Lothar Stoddard and W.E.B. Du Bois.
3: Yes, sir. All
6: right. Oh, did you say earlier that you wanted us to, if we we thought some of what we're reading alludes to what's happening with Donald Trump?
3: Uh, Well, specifically, just uh, what we're reading, how this uh, relates to or how this uh, helps us grasp what Dr. Welsing was seeing uh, to predict Trump's uh, victory because it was in the same lecture where she recommended reading this text where she also, again, predicted that Trump would win. So just if we see any uh, connections uh, between those two as we read. Okay, because I
6: think one thing that's interesting is um, Trump wanting to build a wall and the fact that from uh, for a very long time I've always heard about the fact that Mexico actually owned the Western United States all up in Oregon, California, um, Texas, of course, and and the Baja Peninsula, and that was ceded to the United States, and that they've always wanted that land back. So him wanting to build a wall, and lots of started writing about uh, the stirring in Mexico of the Indians and the Negro fullbloods is kind of akin to what uh, Donald Trump is using as a ruse to build this imaginary wall that he keeps talking about that he wants to build, to keep the Mexicans out. And I think that's also one of the ways that he reached the people in, in, in what they call the rust belt, which are the the poor white males um, who ended up being the ones who voted most for him. And that's who uh, Hillary, um, that those are the people she lost, which allowed her to actually lose the the entire um, run for the presidency. And I just find there to be an intimate connection between the way, uh, Donald Trump speaks about Mexico and Mexicans and the way lots of speaks about Mexico and Mexicans as well. And this being 1920, I find it to be fascinating. Thank you, and I'll meet my line.
0: Right on,
3: right on. We have other folks who had anything they wanted to share? Any other commentary? Folks are good. We didn't miss anybody. Second time around. All right. Uh, I will make sure that I get in um, from the debate. And again, this debate, this is from 1929. So this is almost a decade after Rising Tide of Color was published. Uh, So Stoddard and Dubois, they have a debate. It's titled, Shall the Negro Be Encouraged to Seek Cultural Equality? Now, I stated before, they do spend some time. Uh, going over what that means, what does culture mean, what does equality mean, uh, even what does Negro mean. Um, There are a few things that stood out in this. Uh, We can uh, add this as we go along. I assume that as we continue reading, we probably have three, four, at least three or four more weeks of reading left to do, so I assume that more people will read the debate as we go, so if you want to bring it up next week or whenever down the road, that's fine too. Uh, But one of the Things that I thought was uh, significant, important, uh, since we've been talking about deception. Um, Mr. Stoddard, he goes second. Uh, Dubois goes first, and then Dubois responds. So the first sentence that he says in the debate is, nothing is more unfortunate than delusion. His next sentence is, the Negro has been the victim of delusion ever since the Civil War. Fascinating from someone that we are asserting is being dishonest uh frequently uh throughout his text i thought dubois did a great job as well of consistently reminding both stoddard and the predominantly white audience that whites do all this talking about the purity of the white race and keeping the white race pure no one has done more raping worldwide than whites he emphasized this point over and over and over uh, which i'm glad to report Uh, Folks, uh, as I said, if folks have comments about the debate, we can add those in as we move, feel free. Uh, Specifically as it relates to the text, uh, some of the other things that stood out from the second portion of the reading, uh, I think he has noted, not just in the second portion of the reading, but I think it's been throughout what we've read thus far, and we're about halfway through the text, um, he said that White people squabbling and fighting amongst themselves sometimes has allowed uh, the colored folk to get, you know, away from the control of whites. Uh, That seems to be emphasized on a regular basis, making sure that white people are not squabbling and and fighting with each other, uh, like what happened with World War II, uh, where Mr. Fuller uh, has said consistently he thinks that that really destabilized uh, white supremacy and got a lot of non-white people worldwide working against uh, white rule, uh, and I think that's something that whites talk about on a consistent basis uh making sure that they don't you know lose focus uh, of what they're supposed to be doing, making sure they're dominating non white people I uh, also thought he's this consistent idea that non white people are mobilizing either to counter white supremacy or to challenge to see if if these different groups of non-white people can rule. I thought it was fascinating. In my view, I think it could be a lot of projection uh, going on in this book uh, where you do not want to be honest about the plunder and pathology of the global white minority. So you just attribute all of those negative qualities to the various non-white people throughout the world. So when he says uh, he's talking about Count Okuma, I think is how you say it. Count Okuma expressed a strong preference for Latin America, Latin American countries, uh, as fields for Japanese immigration because most of them were much easier to include within the sphere of influence in Japan in the future. Uh, this you know coming Japanese empire, uh, and he has a lot of that uh, throughout the text. Uh, this idea of of non-white people. I think we talked about some of it last week, uh, and I even hear that. Today, uh, not just today, it seems to be a recurring theme uh, in the system of white supremacy. This notion of uh, the Negroes are going to get themselves together or non white people are going to get themselves together. Again, we got to put a wall up. Non white people are coming to get us. We got to do something, whether it's true or not. And I think that's important as well. Sometimes it could be based in fact that non white people are trying to, to organize themselves as best we can to respond to white supremacy. Sometimes that's not the case at all. And whites just make up reasons. Uh, and again, I think a lot of that paranoia, I think it's linked to exactly what Dr. Francis Crestwosing said white genetic annihilation. I think that's the key underlying element of all this paranoia and thinking that Negroes are going to do something, they're coming to get us. Uh, and I also think when you're terrorizing, abusing people, you know eventually, human nature, people are going to retaliate. I think we talked about that difference uh, with Spook who sat by the door. But eventually, people are going to respond correctly. Uh, I think that also informs a great degree of the white paranoia about non-white people because they know what they are and have done to us. Uh, I also thought it was significant uh, when... This is later on. He's still talking about you know alleged Japanese aggression. He says, Japanese activities in Mexico... Uh, are of special interest here. Japan has three strong strings to her bow. Patriotic dislike of the United States, mestizo hatred of the white gringo and the Indianista movement. And that's something he had talked about throughout this week, this uh, Latino revolution and rebellion. And they're just, you know, they gotta be uh, challenging authority and fighting back and destabilizing things and messing up our, Uh, authority and infrastructure and and business opportunities uh, in these areas. He's talking about this consistently uh, throughout the text Uh, and even this idea that the quote-unquote mestizo, these mixed-race people quote-unquote, their hatred uh, of whites uh, it just, at least in my view it seems to be consistently stated uh, this notion that oh, the non-white people, they just absolutely despise us uh, and they're going to try and work together uh, to topple Uh, white power, uh, this notion consistently, whether it's fact-based or not. I, for one, I think a lot of this is poppycock, uh, that he's just made this up. This seems to be consistent. But I think it's important because whites respond to this sort of racist propaganda, whether it's true or not. They have a history of responding to that, being preemptive with their racist strikes. I also thought where... When he's talking a little bit later, so he says, our whole southwest has been rejoined in Mexico while our southern states were, oh, when he's talking about this alleged attack, I've never heard of this in my life. This could be based in truth. Maybe I just haven't heard of this, but this sounds absurd, this notion uh, that somewhere in the south, Mexicans were going to launch a strike uh, against, I guess, the southwest uh, border, uh, and they were going to take back. San Diego. I've never heard of this uh, idea before, but when he continues, he says our whole southwest was to be rejoined to Mexico while our southern states were to form a black republic. The projected war was conceived strictly in terms of race. Uh, the, recon- the reconquering equitable army to be composed solely of Latins, Negroes, and Japanese. Again, this idea that all of the coloreds uh, are going to somehow coordinate and, and come and get us. And I've, I've heard that consistently when we had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the program in 2000. In his book, he said uh, white people, they know that Negroes are terrorized. We know that black people are mistreated, so their loyalties are always suspect. That is also a common theme, and I think that's how you end up with this element that somehow the Latinas are going to come and they're going to take back uh, San Diego And the Japanese are going to come from halfway around the world and help in this endeavor. And then they'll get the downtrodden Negras to help because we've treated them so poorly that they'll join with anyone to get our foot off of their neck. Uh, I just I find it it is amazing uh, the psychosis of whites. But I think it's important because this is the sort of thing that gets uh, used to justify all sorts of aggression uh against non white people, particularly black people, this idea that they were fighting back and they were gonna terrorize or do something to get black uh get white people. Um I think I can comfortably rest there. Uh did the caller at uh, five seven seven one did you have something you needed to get in before we wrap things up? Uh yeah, just quickly, you know also
4: too, I've been I've been also reading the the, the texts of uh the French Revolution uh, in Saint Domingue uh, by Lopresta, and it is basically mirroring the exact same things uh, what uh, what's going on in this book. And what's what's so interesting, and he's basically concluding that the Haitian Revolution was basically genocide against white people. So I found that like <laughs> really really interesting.
3: Uh, that's all I wanted to add great read as well it's been some years since i've read that text but it is from what i recall it is pretty similar and just this notion that we had such a great thing on this island and the niggers ruined it that's basically the up with the same type of uh flowery diction and what have you but it has been some years since i've read that one uh again i will email the debate to roz uh so he'll have that he can review it before next week anybody else uh feel free I can drop you an email. I posted it on Facebook. I think from now on, I'm just going to link it in the description for the rest of these book study sessions. And that way you can just get it there. If you need to download, it's not that long. It's only about 20 pages. You can feel free, whatever you want to say about uh, the debate. We can just include that as we go. We will be here tomorrow, 9 PM Eastern, 6 PM Pacific. The compensatory call in will be grand to review a historic week uh, I would hope that Cal's listeners were not surprised by any of this. I hope uh, if you listen to the Cow's, particularly if you've been a listener over the last year, that you at some point heard Dr. Welsing's commentary about who she thought was going to win and some of our thoughts about what, Uh, was going to happen uh, with the election. But it will be great uh, to get folks' thoughts on what has transpired, what you have seen in your personal area, what might have happened uh, on the job or with family and friends. Feel free to tune in tomorrow. We can uh, exchange our views. Uh, We should also be here this coming Monday as well. I'll give out the details. It'll be normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, this coming Monday. Uh, If you have any questions, Problems? Uh, if you cannot find something in the archives, or you just have uh, a general inquiry, uh, feel free to drop an email justice at gmail dot com. Untiljustice at gmail dot com. Feel free if you have guest suggestions. Also, uh, I would prefer those go to the email as opposed to Facebook or wherever else uh in social media uh i will state again sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy uh, i hope if anything if anybody was surprised or upset or whatever it is uh with the election hopefully uh that will serve as a reminder that war is being waged against black people non-white people on the whole in all areas of people activity uh, and that we need to take uh, all of this. We need to take uh, racism very seriously and our behavior should correctly reflect that war is being waged against us at all times. I think a big part of that is us being sober uh, so that we can make quality decisions to keep ourselves as safe as possible uh, and to work towards solving this problem immediately. You never know uh, when it will be your time to bump into Daniel Holtzclaw. Darren Wilson, any of these other race soldiers badge or no whites are dangerous. And I just posted on my Facebook page, uh, they had a report from NPR that enforcement officers are feeling emboldened. That was the term that they used in response to president Trump's uh, president elect Trump's success. So just keep that in mind. In my opinion, if you think being intoxicated in this environment is going to help you as a black person, get home safely, make great choices, Uh, just have wonderful things happening to you being intoxicated on cigarettes, alcohol, whatever it is, as you are out and about moving through your day, if you think that's going to make things better for you. Right, I wish you the best with that. With that, we will wrap things up. Uh, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
1: nigga you so brainwashed
3: i'm a victim brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned okay round two name something that's not boring
2: laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh Ah,
3: oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino